all right, mate. Okay, you had an encounter with Christ, and they're already you can already you can hear the eyes rolling, right? Especially for people who've had like, yeah, but have you had five grams of psilocybin mushroom? Christ consciousness is this idea that we're all God by nature, and that through maybe special knowledge of the self, accessing higher consciousness, we can become God in the flesh. We're already God in the flesh, but we can realize we're God in the flesh, just like Jesus realized it. Through this process of awakening, we can all obtain Christ consciousness. This idea that Jesus didn't really exist as a, as a physical man and that we can't know that he gathered disciples and it's all a metaphor. The fact is we have source after source after source that have convinced all of contemporary mm. skeptical scholarship that not only did Jesus exist, but he died on a cross. That means it can't be in an allegory for the death of the, uh, I don't know, the egoic self. Mm and some kind of process of uh, death and rebirth and illumination and the resurrection from the dead doesn't refer to higher consciousness. If we're talking about a physical man who walked the physical earth, and if we took a time machine, we would see a man dying on a cross and a tomb empty. Just like these historians are saying, now why are they saying this? But people wanna say Jesus was actually a Hindu or a yogi or a Buddha or you know some other weird interpretation and it's like why is there always this desire to try to account or twist you know the person of jesus nobody's challenging the documents we have for buddha i've tried to get leo gura on my show multiple times so really? this, is, this is an open invitation to leo actually i would debate leo yeah oh i can be the mediator Alrighty, guys so this has got to be the most controversial piece of content i've ever released on this channel which is quite ironic because it's like I never thought that Christianity would be such a woo revered topic, but for whatever reason it is, man, especially in mainstream pop culture, which kind of attracted me to it in the first place. I'm kind of like a rebel by heart, which is the whole reason why I even started this channel. I think it's a really interesting topic and, you know, people like Jordan Peterson, for example, who definitely contributed to this renaissance in, in, in Christianity. And this year I actually started reading the Bible. For the very first time in my life <laughs> which is and you know 28 and it's funny because I like I grew up with this stuff and completely rejected it like man I was terrible like I used to like curse God and be like really against all organized religion but of course as you get older you know of course there's pros and cons with everything in life all ideologies but you also get hindsight and a, a bigger perspective on things and you're like oh okay I can kind of see why this can be so useful for certain societies you know but uh, this podcast, I interview Stephen Bankards, who's an ex-New Age teacher, turned into a Christian. I, I guess I'd call myself a relentless seeker of truth, right? And sometimes that takes me to pretty crazy places, right? And I, I guess this is sort of like a full circle moment for me. And, you know, we'll have to see where it goes. Again, like I'm just reading the Bible. I haven't even gone up to the, the New Testament yet, but... Um, definitely going deep research mode on all all religion, not just Christianity, of course. But I think that Stephen Bankard, uh, he's a really cool dude. And he has some very interesting ideas, and he's very well researched. Like he, this guy, used to be a New Age teacher, right? He had one of the biggest New Age websites in the world. It was a uh, Spirit Science and Metaphysics or something. Like he worked with the Spirit Science guy, so he knows his stuff. Like he really, really does. And my intention for this podcast isn't to evangelize because again I'm not, I'm not even a christian but it's more to debunk new age jesus myths because just like as a coming from like a scientific evidential perspective a lot of these myths just they don't hold up 
any water. It just doesn't make any sense. Like the most ridiculous one, especially going around in the psychonaut community, is that Jesus was a mushroom. Which, by the way, the guy who came up with that eventually apologized for it. As far as I'm concerned, allegedly, allegedly. So don't don't quote me on that. But this, to me, is like the kind of the, the flat Earth theory <laughs> of New Age Jesus myths, right? Or you know, one that you'd hear is. Jesus was a metaphor, or he represented Christ consciousness, all this kind of stuff. And I believed all this stuff, so I understand. In, if you look at it in a certain angle, it kind of makes sense. But then when you actually look at the evidence, it's like, okay, it, it, it falls apart very quickly. And that was my intention with this podcast. So we completely destroy a lot of these new age myths. I think we need to call out bad ideas even within our own community because when you start spreading things like oh Jesus was a mushroom like without really researching it it, it doesn't look good <laughs> for your community so I think it's important for us to self-regulate it's important to be skeptical call out bad ideas and at the same time be open-minded to new ideas it's both right and yeah anyways we had a very long conversation this is it definitely made me think on a lot of stuff and I learned a lot of mind-blowing concepts and things that that I used to believe that completely got destroyed just by again just lo looking at the historical evidence um, but yeah I think you guys will enjoy this I, I would ask you guys to watch it until the end of course debating and, and challenging ideas is more than welcome on this channel but I would ask for you guys to do it with some love and respect don't try and just attack people viciously because I don't know as far as I'm concerned I don't think someone's philosophical standpoint has ever been changed or persuaded via YouTube comments I don't think it really happens especially if you just attack them and just kind of treat them like they're stupid or whatever I'm right you're wrong and we live in this era of extreme polarization especially more than ever and with this YouTube algorithm man if you've seen the social dilemma you will know that the algorithm is built to just further your confirmation bias. So whatever you're looking on YouTube, everything that's going to be, get recommended is going to be things that kind of fit your little bubble. So that's why I want to start interviewing people from all different standpoints, right? Christians, I want to, you know, I'm going to interview a occult Satanist. Uh, I don't know when that's going to happen, but we're going back and forth. But he's a very renowned occult teacher. I'm going to ask him about this stuff and the Satanist point of view. And I would love to interview Hindus, Buddhists, whatever, you know, whoever's down for a open-minded conversation, you know. So, that being said, guys, uh, enjoy the podcast. Uh, make sure to go to Spotify and iTunes. Leave us a five-star review if you're feeling extra generous. And if you want to support this podcast, then you can also get some merch or sign up to our Patreon, become a monthly supporter. This really helps us make the more higher, the high-end documentaries you know and yeah i try to do my best to give you guys quality content but that makes you think you know so yeah Oof. just brace yourselves <laughs>
Jesus myths and you know just kind of like go through your story things like that and wherever it goes it goes man so I'm, I'm pretty I have like time that. for it I wasn't kidding my bedtime is so whack right now really? it's about seven hours till I sleep yeah wow. my life is a night shift and I, I'm trying to jot back to something normal but I just I don't know maybe I need clinical help who knows <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do man I think we all do it's difficult because I can imagine you having like this cr super successful new age website and then complete 180, man. So I can only imagine how difficult that would have been, especially business-wise, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was very... I had to move back in with my parents. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. I'm still living with my parents. Um, I could rent if I want to, but I'm choosing to save. But yeah, it, it was difficult. And then I was like, okay, what do I actually... What do I actually do now? Mm. Um, I didn't know how to. It took me a while to kind of get a, a vision, and it took me a while to fully tank my old stuff, like my website. First, I was like, "Well, I'm going to share articles from my website that aren't explicitly New Age articles. Mm. That way, I can still have some kind of income." And I was like, "Well, I don't want to be redirecting people to that site, so maybe I'll just leave the website up and allow passive income to come in without me sharing the articles." And it took me about like nine months to a year after I had my like come to Jesus moment to be like, okay, finally it was a, it was like I was fighting tooth and nail. And so it wasn't as I did do a 180 in my worldview and in what I believed, but as far as like translating that in the material world, mm. that took, that took a while. That was like a, a process. Yeah, well, uh, obviously my my shift isn't so dramatic because like my name is your mate Tom. It's not like psychedelic, whatever, you know. So you can do anything, bro. Yeah, exactly. So you've set yourself up good, where you can do anything. You could do like recipe videos, and people would still watch. <laughs> they can't. They can't complain. They can't be like, "Hey, why are you making a tuna sandwich today?" And you're like, my channel is your mate Tom. I can do what I want. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's more of that that over identification. It's definitely a lot of fear. Maybe you just get afraid to, because obviously, if your whole identity and business is attached to this thing, it can be very difficult to shift. But then it's all in your mind too, because I think all the all the people who actually support you want you to follow what you're into. You know, because yeah, I had I was news isn't nothing. I, the whole views and subscriber thing, how it just absolutely means nothing to me now. Because it doesn't mean, like, you can have a 2 million subscribers and millions of views and still, like, be broke, you know? Ads, I, I mean, sure, you make some decent AdSense money, but, yeah, it's a lot yeah. more than that, you know? Try to add value, add value to people's lives. Exactly. So, I've got to just, yeah, still working on my own shit, but here we go, man. Yeah, do you just want to cool. get right into it? Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely, we can get right into it. Sweet, for man. Sure. Let's do it. So, welcome, everybody to another epic podcast. We've got Steven here and man, this guy's got a really interesting story because you, you had like one of the biggest new age websites on the planet, right? Like spirit science and metaphysics, was that it? That was it, yeah. And then I was also a guest author for a while on uh, spirit science, which I'm sure some of your audience knows the cartoon yeah. on YouTube. And I used to be an author on uh, Jordan's website. And for a while, he was a really good friend of mine, and I was a little bit involved in, in Spirit Science and helping out with their website and um, their Facebook page, and Jordan was a good friend of mine. Um, 
was able to meet him and hang out with him once in, in Modesto back in 20, man, 2014 now. But yeah, my website was pretty, pretty successful um, in terms of getting, you know, maybe 150,000 views a day, 200,000 views a day, wow. um, bringing in, you know, $40,000, $50,000 a month in ad revenue. And um, the point of this website, too, was to try to rationally ground new age thought and new age practice. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to take people's word for it. I want to actually like dive in mm. and I want to anchor these worldview claims into some kind of form of evidence so that I can actually pay, paint a picture, paint a worldview that actually corresponds to reality and isn't just, well, some guy says, some guy with a ponytail says some 5D alien told him that and so I'm going to believe it. No, I want to actually ground it in something. So I was studying a lot of different anomalies that um, in consciousness studies that seem to indicate a correlation between human consciousness and the external world. We're talking about the observer effect in quantum mechanics. We're talking about something known as the Baxter effect, um, a famous experiment done by uh, a, a Japanese professor named um, Emoto with the water crystals, yeah, I know which one. was then replicated. It was then replicated by Dean Radin from the Noetic Institute. And so I was trying to understand, how do we understand consciousness? Is it, any, is it an emergent property from our brain or is it more fundamental to nature like space, time, matter, and energy? Mm. Right. And so I'm trying to create a world. How do we reconcile these studies about human consciousness and the external world with um, our idea about God? Mm. And how do we reconcile that with the ministry of Jesus? And how do we reconcile that with the reincarnation research? coming from Dr. Ian Stevenson and Dr. Jim Tucker, and where you seem to have all these cases of people who have past life memories, and they seem to be corresponding to maybe birthmarks that they uh, that indicate wounds they suffered from a previous life, um, very specific details given, and, you know, 40 years worth of research Ian Stevenson did, and I was reading some of his, his um, published articles and so forth, and I was tying that into, like, near-death experiences that, you know, seemed to be indicating a worldview I couldn't reconcile with the Christian worldview I'd been raised with. Born and raised Christian, homeschooled Christian, Christian private school, Christian all the way. I started getting into all this information. I'm like, how can I relate that back to what I was raised with? It seems to be indicating a different worldview. Mm. And then you had the work of Dr. Michael Newton from Journey of Souls and Destiny of Souls, where um, through hypnotherapy, he would bring people back into past life memories, but not just past life memories. His work was specialized around in-between life memories. So their previous life, they would have a memory of their death in a previous life, their spirit leaving their body, going up into the spirit world, and they're telling what they saw in the spirit world. And all these stories apparently corroborated one another, put it together into research. I was reading this stuff. I was trying to relate this to channeled material I was reading. Um, David Wilcock was my favorite teacher by far. I was a massive David Wilcock fan. Yeah, I used to listen to him. Yeah, and I'm trying to put all these pieces together, and that was really the core motive of of my website. And so obviously, um, it attracted people because they're like, "Hey, there's actually a little bit of substance to these ideas. It's not just completely made up." And now, obviously, uh, as a Christian, I have a different interpretive standard. And really, my life now is how do we answer some of these new age claims and worldviews and and practices and some of the apparent evidence for these things. Um, in light of the truth, in light of a higher authority, and in light of actual history, actual science, actual philosophy, 
like some of these claims don't actually check out if you go outside of your new age conclave for answers. Mm. And, and what, is, so, what is new age spirituality compared to, let's say, modern spirituality, or is it the same thing? Like what, what makes new age new age? Well, it's hard to kind of pin down a, um, a definition for new age because it's an umbrella term. Okay. And it really refers to a mixing pot of worldviews and practices. It draws maybe a little bit from Buddhism, not like in a traditional Buddhist eightfold path, but maybe the importance of right action and mindfulness. Okay. Um, they might draw a little bit from Hinduism. Yeah. They might draw a little bit from esotericism or theosophy. Um, maybe a little bit from, I don't know, guys like Timothy Leary or Terence McKenna and kind of like the psychedelic revolution of the 60s and 70s or Ram Dass for that matter. Hmm. And it allows you to kind of create a worldview that's pretty subjective to you, that pretty much fits you. So it, it's a very subjectivist type of, I want to say, pagan spirituality um, that it's not just one set of beliefs and practices. It, it incorporates a wide range of them. Hmm. And, you know, but there, that being said, there are some staple doctrines within New Age spirituality. Um, things like reincarnation would be a virtually stable doctrine. The idea that man is intrinsically divine by nature would be another staple doctrine. Um, the idea that Christ taught Christ consciousness and was teaching us a higher path of enlightenment is virtually a staple of New Age spirituality. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so... I'm sorry, I was just laughing because uh, I, I bought into all this kind of stuff and just actually going deeper into it, you realize uh, not, not all, but some of these ideas can be quite dangerous, especially if you go all the way with it. Uh, from yeah. personal experience anyway, but uh, I would like, yeah. I would love to like, you know, obviously break down Jesus Christ and especially debunk a lot of the new age myths, like some, like Christ consciousness, like you mentioned, like it's this divine state of being, uh, stating that you're God or something like that. That's pretty popular new age belief or Jesus was a mushroom. That's my favorite one. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And it's funny cause I, you know, you mentioned spirit science and that's actually the channel that opened my mind to these new age practices it was actually like a milestone like whoa, whoa what is this and it like it just made me think different about reality and got me on this path but yeah man i'd love to actually just break down all these stuff so like what what are the most popular new age myths about jesus and yeah just go for it man yeah i was gonna say it's good to think differently about reality, as long as by differently we mean more accurately. Mm -hmm. Does the way I'm thinking about reality, does it correspond to reality itself better mm. than before? And if that's what we mean by different, then amen, let's continue to think differently as long as it actually corresponds to the real world. And it's an accurate account of the affairs of the world. Um, but just to finish off kind of like my, my website story, and then I'll answer some things about yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah sorry, having, sorry about I'm getting ahead of myself. No problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, so basically I, what it boiled down to for me was my life bottoming out morally. And I will say this too. It's not that uncommon for people in the New Age movement, including New Age teachers, to be living very hypocritical lives behind closed doors. I mean, I was one of them. Um, me too. You know, Doreen Virtue came. Yeah, Doreen Virtue came out of the New Age movement as well through um, an encounter with Jesus and her angel card decks. Her, she's world-renowned for her angel card decks and her mediumship. 
And, you know, when we talk, I'll, I'll be mentioning her, you know, I'll, I'll bring up some like new HT. Oh, I knew him. He did this, this, this. Like, what? Yeah, we were having this conference and he did this. this. I'm like, like, she has stories for days. She doesn't share them. Mm. Right. That's not the point. But the point is, is like, this is kind of a pretty regular theme that, you know, you're going to have people with problems or broken people. We have problems. I was one of them. Mine caught up with me and I had to start confessing to other people in my life that, hey, I've been living this double life. Broke hearts, broke people, broke my own heart in the process, realized I'm a slave to sin. Mm. I'm a slave to my pain. And, um, you know, I had just written a book called Live Free, which got like 30 or 40,000 downloads, which was basically a mindfulness book. And here I am broken, having to confess that I haven't been free the whole time. Mm. And um, my mother, who had raised me Christian, she saw the effect it had on me and the other person, the, the confession of a double life I was living. And she was like, are you ready to give your life to the Lord yet? And so I said a prayer of salvation with her. And what that prayer of salvation meant to me, and this ties into what we're going to be getting into with Jesus, the prayer of salvation was, okay, Jesus, I want you as you actually are. Please invade my life as you really are. I don't want to be intellectually dishonest with you anymore and try and fit you into a paradigm that doesn't actually correspond to what you've said and did. I want to receive you as you actually were in history, as you actually are now. I invite you into my life. I want to partner with you in this life. I give my life to you. I believe my mom um, caused or led me into a prayer, you know, confessing him as Lord and Savior for my sin, dying on the cross for sin, which is true, but I didn't really know what that meant at the time. But I was like, I'm all in, Jesus. You know, if you are who you say you are, I want it. So a couple of weeks passed by. I had to confess another round of sin at the end of those two weeks um that was worse than the first should have ended me in prison uh i was preparing to go to prison and i was forgiven graciously and thankfully and um that is when i like that's when i hit rock bottom and that's when i was like um you know jesus if you're real i i need you now and i'm sorry like i'm genuinely sorry that i sinned against people in my life and you know, you. I sinned against God. I had this sense of, I have sinned against God. I've sinned against people. And I fell at the feet of Jesus, um, the back balcony of my house. I was just weeping in repentance, crying, just, I'm, I'm all in. I'm sorry. You know, help me. I'm broken. I can't do this. And uh, the only way I can describe this, he revealed himself to me, not visually, but spiritually. He shared his presence with me for the first time. And I felt his presence, like, enter in, and I could sense his attention was on me. And it, I, I was, he was fixed on me. His attention was fixed on me. I could sense uh, he, was, he was with me and his mind was set on me. And I could feel his presence surrounding me and also filling me at the same time. And I'm just, I'm just weeping like a babe. I'm getting rocked. I, I didn't know that he would he would show up like this. I didn't know that he would manifest himself like this. And I'm just completely overwhelmed because around me in the sounds of nature, the wind, bro, I was like it was it was, a, it was a breeze out and the wind felt like it was infused with his presence, bro. Whoa. And it like the sounds of nature, like the crickets, the leaves on the trees, everything sounded in that moment like it was worshiping him. And it was glorifying him. It was like in the spirit, if you will, the Lord allowed me to detect how creation responds when he shows up. 
And at that point, I thought cre creation itself was God. But when Jesus showed up, I was like, even creation itself cries out. Hmm. Even creation itself recognizes the Lord's here, our King's here, our Maker's here. And I had this implicit awareness that nature itself was bearing witness to Jesus. I could sense that. And, and it, that was Jesus letting me know, hey, yes, I love you. Yes, I have grace and mercy for you. But here's my relationship to the created world. I'm Lord over the universe. I'm King over the universe. I'm God over the universe. And I, and I had an experience of that. It was an encounter with God. I was sober as a judge, but it was an encounter with God. And I'm being filled. And in my mind, all I can say is Jesus is Lord. This is so simple. How did I miss this? He's the Son of God. I'm thinking all this in my head. He's the Son of God, the Jesus of the New Testament. He's Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is so simple. I didn't know that the Bible said no one says Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Mm. But I'm saying this in my head. And I went back in my house after this about five-minute encounter with Jesus and that is when everything changed. That's when I told people online, um, you know, Jesus is who he claimed to be. I just encountered him. Hey, I'd like to tell you about Jesus and my experience with him and, and what I think that means for these practices and these worldviews. And got a lot of backlash, but also a lot of people interested. And um, since then, that's really been what my life has been about. I, I had to sell out of my old life because I couldn't afford mortgage payments. You know, I was paying 5,000 a month on mortgage and my it, revenue went down more and more and more as I kept cutting back how much of my website I was allowing to be out there. Mm -hmm. And then I hit the red, I was in the red every month and I, I, could, I had to live, move back in with my parents. I'm still living at my parents. I'm still in their basement. My bed's right here. <laughs> and that's been almost five years. Wow. And, uh, but I'm in the truth now and I know God now and I'm serving Jesus now and um, I have communion and fellowship with God, but we can talk about that at the end of it. But like Jesus offers us more than a worldview. He offers us himself and he paid a price for us to know him and be known by him and for us to experience him. That's mm. the price he paid that we could be filled with God, have communion and fellowship with God and know him through communion and fellowship. You know, God forbid I come on here and tell your audience to just, believe something new. Like I want to, I want people to know you can know God. Jesus mm. says this, this is eternal life in his, in his final prayer to the father in John 17, before his crucifixion. Anyway, he says, this is eternal. He's talking to the father. This is eternal life that they know you, the only God. Eternal life is to know the father, mm. right? And the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin. And we'll get into some things that he said and the implications of his death and resurrection now that our sin no longer separates us from a holy God, a righteous God, he loves us, but he's too holy to just blink at sin. He requires a price to be paid. Jesus paid that price for us. Now we have access to an all-good, all-loving God when we turn to Christ with a repentant faith, and then we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Now we have communion with God, and that's what changed my life. Mm. Not a world, not a belief. I encountered Jesus. He came and lived in me. He's living in me now, and he wants to live in everybody. He wants to indwell everyone. He wants us to all know God. And um, so Christianity, yes, it's a religion, but it's spirituality. Mm. It's, a, it's a spiritual religion. And by religion, we mean system of faith and worship. That's all that word means. Mm -hmm. But the difference between Christianity and other religions is that Christianity is God-made. I would say all the other religions are at best man-made. 
And I say it best because I think some are demon-made. Hmm. But um, Christianity is God's ordained and decreed system of faith and worship. It's going to be coming through my son, Jesus. Jesus says, the Father looks for those to seek him in spirit and in truth. God has defined what that looks like in his word. What does it mean to seek God in spirit? What does it mean to seek God in truth? And that's what we mean by religion. It's a system of faith and worship. But it's one that God initiated. It's God's redemptive plan for humanity. So what makes Christianity different from other world religions is it's God-made, and therefore it's true. And, um, and I would also say there's much better evidence for Christianity than any other religious claim, and we'll get into some of that um, today. But you had asked me about—actually, I'll turn it back over. Do you want me to go into, like, some of the New Age versions of Jesus? Uh, or you have oh, just, just before, like, the people listening, be like, all right, mate, okay, you had an encounter with Christ, and they were already—you can, already, can hear the eyes rolling, right? And maybe, especially for people who've had, like, yeah, but have you had five grams of psilocybin mushrooms? That's what— and I've, I've had these many profound experiences, as many people know, and I haven't directly experienced Christ, so I, I can't tell, you know, say from experience that I know what you're talking about. Uh, but why are people so resistant to this kind of stuff, especially terms like sin and repentance? I notice that the, these words, like, kind of, maybe some people interpret it as, oh, there's something inherently wrong with me, and you know what I mean? Uh, th these kind of words kind of triggered me as well, and that's what I didn't like about Christianity. So, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Why, why are people particularly triggered by these, these concepts like sin? And what is sin, well, it's actually? Interesting. Let's, let's break that down. That, that's interesting because when you think about it, all religions, or at least most of them, have some kind of account for human wrong action mm -hmm. and some kind of system of atonement for that wrong action. Like right? Karma, karma, um, right? Yeah, to alle alleviate karmic debt mm -hmm. and to leave samsara, at least in the case of Eastern religions or even theosophy or even the church universal triumphant, some of these more Western schools of, you know, esoteric thought. You know, theosophy was an extremely uh, karma-based system. They believed in a traditional account of karma where you're basically atoning for the moral failure and moral wrong action of previous lives in this one you're atoning for it with your own action mm. right and that's the case in, in buddhism you have an eightfold path that's meant to lead you into a state of nirvana when you reach nirvana you've left samsara mm -hmm. you've alleviated karmic debt in hinduism you have more of a threefold path sometimes a four depending on who you talk to and after you go through uh you know either yana yoga or bhakti yoga or karma yoga to reach a place of moksha, a state of consciousness where you come to a realization that all is God and God is all, all is Brahman, the Atman is Brahman, only then have you alleviated your karmic debt and you could leave this cycle of death and rebirth, um, and which is called samsara, and go on into uh, the spiritual realm. Hmm. Now, so every worldview, every, every religion, including Eastern ones that New Age people often like to draw from, they involve human wrong, act, wrong action and a system of atonement. The correction is, which, well, which system is true? Mm. Every religion now has some kind of system of, of wrongdoing and atonement. But I think that when it comes to Christianity, um, it's like I believe that there's something implicit in the God of the Bible that is a little bit more 
morally offensive to us because we know that there's more of an authority mm. behind the God of the Bible. He's more of, I want to say he's more of a, um, a threat to our lifestyle. Mm. He's more of a threat to our self-sovereignty. And, you know, when things happen in the world, you know, natural disasters, you know, child sex trafficking, for example, um, maybe deep state corruption in, the, in government, mm. you know, when people are angry at God for allowing this, they're not angry at Shiva for allowing this. They're not angry at some uh, angelic being or some diva, I believe they're called in Buddhism. They're angry at, their anger is focused around, like, it, it's the God, of, it's the Christian God that they're angry with. Mm. That's the God we take exception to. And I think it's because, um, you know, we, we don't want to be morally accountable to a holy God. And, and we want to run our own lives and be self-sovereign. I know I did. So I'm not above people who have that desire. I mean, it's a lifelong long process learning how to surrender and walk in obedience, right? But I had this issue with sin. That wasn't even a word on my radar when I was in, you know, teaching on, online and stuff. And there's still about 80 articles of mine that are circulating on various New Age websites that people had um, copied and pasted and re-uploaded. So if people think I'm making it up, my, my old work's out there. Um, but I never taught on sin or repentance. I wanted to be self-sovereign. I didn't. I knew the God of Scripture. I knew Jesus confronted the skeletons I had in my conscience. And he he says, the re, this is the judgment that light came into the world and people love darkness rather than light because they don't want to come to the light lest it be made manifest that the deeds that they had done were done in darkness. Hmm. And Jesus tells his own disciples, the world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Right. And so Jesus tells us, you know, we're sinners and we need intervention. We can't save ourselves. We need someone to intervene, and we don't like intervention. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to do things on our own, right? And that's just the pride of man. I have that. I'm still, I still struggle with self-sufficiency and wanting to do things even in Christ mm. on my own, but, it, but it's all through him, right? And so he challenges our pride. He challenges our self-righteousness. He challenges this belief that we're a good person and we can kind of you know, atone for our past mistakes by balancing the karmic scales of good and evil through our own works. And he's like, no, you need me. Right, but he says this, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but I came into the world that through me the world may be saved. Right? So but we don't like the diagnosis. Hmm. Jesus comes in, and he provides a diagnosis. He also provides the solution, which is wonderful. God's grace, love, mercy, desire for relationship and fellowship. But I think the reason why people have such a strong resistance to the God of Scripture is because I think that in, in people's conscience they know the God of Scripture is closest to, closer to the true God than, you know, dare I say Allah. Mm. or Shiva, or something. And when we start getting closer to the God of Scripture, the true God, you know, the diagnosis on our life starts to become evident. Hey, I'm actually a sinner who's guilty before a holy God, and, and we don't want to come before a holy God in the same way a guilty criminal doesn't want to come before a police officer. Mm. He doesn't want to find a police officer. He doesn't want to deal with a police officer, right? We're lawbreakers. We're sinners, right? You ask what sin is. Sin is a transgression of the law, of God's law, right? So we can sin by commission, we can commit sins, we can sin by omission. We can fail to do something and commit a sin. And God's like, hey, yeah, I know you're a sinner, but bring that to me. I have love, forgiveness, grace, mercy. I've made provision and payment 
for all that sin, in one sense, we, we talked on our, our, our call previously, in one sense, we'll be careful with saying this, but we, we could almost say Jesus bore the karmic debt of the world on his shoulders. Hmm. Everybody's moral debt was laid upon Christ, and Christ was judged in our place. He paid for it in his life's blood. And he's like, come to me. I took care of it all. Yeah, I know you have guilt and shame. Come to me. There's forgiveness. There's mercy. And now you can have fellowship with God. Now that the sin's taken care of, the karmic debt's alleviated, now you can have fellowship with God. Jesus, Jesus says in John 10, verse, or sorry, Mark 10, 45, um, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is what you would pay to a slave owner to release the slave from, it, from their debt hmm. to their owner. And Jesus is saying, I came to give my life as a ransom, a payment. We have a moral debt of justice with God. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus is like, I came to give my life as a payment for their sins, right? And so we resist because it's like we don't like the diagnosis and because our conscience bears witness that, hey, we might have some things in our life that you know, we need forgiveness for. We need God's help for. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, but I've, I've taken care of it. You know, it's okay. Just turn and believe. Mm. You know, um, yeah, and, and yeah, just to, um, before going into the authority of scripture and all that kind of stuff, and the corruption in the Catholic Church and et cetera, et cetera, because uh, I just mentioned about the like the psychedelic trip, right? Like you, you've had when you had that Jesus experience. I'm assuming that you were completely lucid. This wasn't substance induced. Uh, have you had really profound experiences? Let's say with mushrooms, where you contacted the the divine and all this kind of stuff and yeah. how would you compare that because because um, as you know psychedelics can be so overwhelmingly profound that it changes your life forever so how do you compare like a full-blown mystical mushroom trip compared to like this experience that you had and why yeah, does this have well, authority done... you know over that yeah and how do you know well, that it's not that. and how do you know it's not your mind attaching yourself to another ideology you know what i mean yeah well, I have, I've only done psychedelics a handful of times and no more than a few grams. Um, but I did have an experience where I thought to myself, this is what Moses felt like when he went onto Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. I feel like I'm staring to the face of God. Hmm. And that and I remember looking up at the clouds and I'm trying my best to commune with what I believe to be God. And every time, like, a, an utterance tried to come to my tongue, it was like, human language wasn't transcendent enough to encapsulate what I was experiencing and aimed at in that moment. And it was like, it could only, I felt like it could only be known and observed through silence and through awareness. But the minute I tried to speak on it, uh, the, the quality was, was, the quality dissolved because I was reducing it down to an idea or I, I couldn't, right? So I've had these, I've had these experiences in meditation, I've had these experiences on psychedelics, and they're they're just it's like it's like they're qualitatively different. It's like um, it, it's just it's a different experience. Now I believe when when we have psychedelic experiences, we can have transpersonal experiences. We have more an expanded consciousness, an expanded sense of self. Mm. But we start mistaking that for God consciousness and drawing theological conclusions from these experiences that simply can't be drawn. I think that, like, there's so we, we do <laughs> Actualize.org. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was just talking. Sorry. I had something in my throat. Right. <laughs> I, I experienced transcendence. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that transcendence must be 
the creator. Mm-hmm. Or the creator's up there saying, hey, what are you doing altering your consciousness? I'm a person. Let's have a conversation. I'm not known in altered states. I'm known in you know just an ordinary state, and I have a will for you. I love you. I have a plan for you. We're out here shifting our consciousness and expanding our awareness. We're thinking God is known in that expansion. And I would say, like, are we really permitted to deduce from an experience on some kind of, you know, chemical, mm. which is really what we're talking about here. We're talking about like biochemical alterations to the brain that mm. um, we're actually encountering God in these instances. And I would say as someone who thought he was, they're just qualitatively different. They're just mm. qualitatively different. I wasn't encountering God. Um, I thought I was. And after encountering God for real, which wasn't just one experience. It's not like, like I encounter God regularly, right? The Bible says, you know, this is how we know we are the children of God because of the spirit that he's given to us, right? So the Holy Spirit like lives in me and I can sense his presence throughout the day. I sense his presence now. And so the Holy Spirit bears witness with us that we are children of God. And the Holy Spirit is a self-authenticating, self-verifying presence. Whereas in my experience on psychedelics, it wasn't self-authenticating and self-verifying. I was definitely in a, some kind of transcendent altered state. Mm. But if you were to ask 100 people who, I mean, everyone around me took the same amount I did or more. We did it in a group. None of them came to those same conclusions. Everyone had different conclusions about what they were experiencing. Yep. There wasn't a self-authenticating witness present in the experience itself that is undeniable and, and inarguable. And when you come to Christ and you encounter Jesus for the first time in, in a real experiential way, it's self-authenticating, self-verifying, and it possesses a quality of a personal, loving, holy God that you can't mistake for anything else. The way I see it is like, you know, if I had a match and I, I, I lit a match and I was holding a latch, a latch up and I was like, wow, I see light there's light here. And then I go outside and I stand in front of the sun Mm. for the first time. And I'm exposed to the sun for the first time. Like they're qualitatively different. Yeah. And, um, it's like apples and oranges really. So I, I don't believe that what I experienced was, was God. It wasn't God. It was an altered state, a a state of self transcendence. Mm -hmm. I mistook for being God and, and people might not like this, but I would ask, I would ask this question. So I would submit this question. Everyone, who practices these things is aware of the existence of what people may call trickster entities. Oh um, yeah. I've, I've made videos on this in the past. So yeah. Right. <laughs> and so when that feeling of, wow, this is really what it feels like to encounter God, or I feel like I'm looking into the face of God, or I feel like I understand Jesus now while I'm mushrooms, who's to say that your mind in that instance isn't having a projection or an impression being pressed onto your mind from an outside influence, inspiring and inducing those thoughts and those impressions. Like, how can you kind of fail safe against that? Right. And I believe that was happening with me. There were times where I would have these really, even just practicing, practicing waking mindfulness where something would shift it would just be like this shift in the sp- in this area, and I would have like this awareness. It was almost like the external world around me was aware that I was aware of its true divine nature, and I was like having communion with the divine in the natural. I'd be, I'd be working out at the gym, practicing mindfulness in between sets, and it'd just be this 
the, the shift in consciousness that would happen. Like, like who's to say in, in that worldview, in the worldview of, um, you know, psychedelic drugs, maybe the new world, new age worldview, could you ever really say with certainty that a demon wasn't impressing me there or a demon didn't plant thoughts or impressions into me or a trick serenity in, in, in that language to oh. cause me to think I was experiencing God? Yeah, oh, I mean, you know, maybe some people would say that, oh, oh, these demons, it's just your your shadow coming to the surface and wanting to integrate itself. What, what would you say to that? Like demons aren't bad. Yeah, it's all, it's all say... within your unconscious. It's all fear. It's all fear. It's not. There's no external well, I... demon trying to attack you. Yeah, I have a. Um, I I looked into a lot of people's testimonies who encountered these entities in the astral plane, in particular during after projection, after projection experiences of which I've had to, I've left my body twice. And I was looking at, and I have a whole video on after projection where I show very clearly from testimonials that these people did not go into these experiences with any degree of fear. And yet they were still harassed <clears throat> by demons that they were aware were demons. Hmm. So one girl in particular, she would leave her body and she would continuously have encounters with someone she believed to be um, like her spiritual soulmate. I think his name was Alex or something in the astral plane. And they would have astral sex. And one day she met with Alex in the astral plane and Alex approached her and shapeshifted into like this half goat, half bull entity with horns and then invited. There was two other entities who came into the mix and they all took turns raping her. Oh. They like, paralyzed her to the bed out of her body and then all took turns raping her so she went in with the highest intentions i'm meeting my lover i'm meeting the love of my life he flips the switch turns into a demon they all sodomize her right so i show very clearly that fear is not a precondition for encountering demons um new age literature astral projection literature admits the uh reality of demons in the spirit world i quote in that video from a variety of new age teachers saying yeah you can encounter demons yeah they're going to show up Here's, how you have to do, here's what you have to do to protect yourself from them. But we can also see from other testimonials, those things do nothing to protect yourself from them. There's only one thing in all of astral projection experiences and UFO abduction experiences that causes these encounters to cease um, from continuing, and it's calling out to the name of Jesus. There's a website called alienresistance.org that goes through 100 different testimonials of believers and unbelievers stopping these attacks in the name of Jesus, and that should really tell us something about the, na the, okay. the nature of the entities. So it's not just biased Christians saying this stuff, no. you already believe it. This is even people who could be an atheist, who's never even thought oh. twice about Jesus, and just in a, a, a situation of desperateness, you're just like, oh, I don't know what to do, uh, Jesus? And then yeah. they, you're telling me yeah. that they'll disappear yeah. for the most part. Non-Christian researchers okay. um, back in the 90s, uh, researching and interviewing people about alien abduction phenomenon were asking unbelievers non-christians about hey how did you stop these experiences from happening and only one thing kept appearing as a theme the only remedy for these attacks and the testimonies would all corroborate one another they called out to the name of jesus and they stopped Whoa. so that need, that means we need to take these things into account if we're going to start believing near-death testimonies and basing our worldview off that or based on what people say during psychedelic trips, what about all these people who have attack after attack, stop, 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 by calling it the name of Jesus? And I would also say, this might seem a little ad hoc, but if the Christian worldview is true, and if Ephesians 6 is true, and it says our battle is against principalities and powers, 
of darkness in the heavenly places. And there's spiritual warfare going on for people's souls. And the warfare is designed to be oriented against the cross. If I were a demon, what would I want people to think about me as I'm toying with their mind, astral raping them, tormenting them in their sleep? What would I want them to think about my true identity? I'd want them to think I'm some manifestation of their unconscious. I'm, I'm a shadow self. I mean, that's, that's pure genius. That's pure, pure genius deception. Rather than think of the demon as other and as enemy, I'm going to think of the demon as self right. and as something to be into, integrated. You should love everything. And right? Everything's connected. Everything is you. Therefore, yeah, just so, accept and surrender. That, this is something that I, I get all the time, uh, even in like ayahuasca retreats. And things like that, you know, like I, yeah, I, except, would, I remember having a really, really scary experience, and the lady just, just give, give in, surrender, but deep in my heart, I'm like, I, th there are certain levels of it, right? There, there are some trips where you face, let's say, trauma or something like that. In that case, I would say, yeah, give in to that because it's all your, your memory, your emotion. You need to face that kind of stuff. But then sometimes it just feels overwhelmingly nefarious. Where my deep down in my soul, I'm like, I don't want to surrender to this man, you know. Even after, right. even though the facilitators will come to me, and be like, hey, just surrender, just surrender. I'm like, uh, I, you clearly have not had this dark of a trip. Otherwise, you, you know what I mean? Like they, and most people don't. Most people don't go to that extreme, extreme level. And who knows why I did? Maybe it's, uh, it could be because I'm a teacher, of, or not a teacher, but that's what some people sure, consider. Sure, sure. But maybe because I'm on this platform teaching about it so the karma was like much more heavy you know what i mean maybe i'm just like kind of come out with theories here but well what comes to mind upon hearing that is people say like well yeah just surrender to the entity and love the entity the entity is a, a reflection of yourself and i would hear that and um but okay have you ever played a trick on somebody in the natural okay imagine evil people conspiring together to deceive let's say one of their girlfriends okay let's say a buddy is out he's sleeping with other girls he calls his buddy the next day he's like hey my girlfriend is at the store right now mm -hmm. i want you to go accidentally bump into her and i want you to say oh me and your buddy had such a good time last night yeah he came over we played cards and we just had a locate out of the house it was really chill oh, how's he doing i want you to vouch for me that i wasn't out with these other girls i was just at your place you know, uh, playing cards with you. So go bump into her accidentally and just slip that in there mm. so that she thinks, oh, of course I was just, you know, scared for nothing. People do this stuff. I've done stuff like that before. And if humans play tricks on one another and deceive one another, how much more evil are demons? What if it's the case that uh, it, it is in fact a demon? Someone tells you just love and accept it. When you love and accept it, the demon flees. Yeah, the demons got you got you bought into that worldview now. Mm. All, all the demon has to do is, is kind of relax its demonic presence and flee. Wow, you you know made that unconscious part of yourself finally integrated by loving it, and now there's like peace and the scary experience is gone. They've got you hook, line, and sinker. So how do we know? What we need is we need to be able to step outside of all of this and appeal to an infallible, highest authority who can tell us the objective reality about what's actually going on in all of these different varying subjective experiences we're all having. Mm. We need someone outside of all of it to say, this is what's actually happening. This is how we interpret this. And if there is a man who just so happened to 
live a sinless life and control the forces of nature and raise the dead and cast out devils and raise himself from the dead and proved through demonstration after demonstration and through the test of time that he is, in fact, that authority. I want to know what he has to say about these things. Hmm. I have my thoughts, but if there's a higher authority, I want to get plugged into the higher authority. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and we're, we're going to get into all that kind of stuff. Uh, even though I'm going to put my atheist hat on and be super skeptical about this. Uh, but, <laughs> okay. uh, but yeah, it's interesting, like what you're saying, like if, if humans, just the fact that there are evil humans and just the very fact that there are conspiracies in the world. And, you know, if you're a new ager as well, you know, the term as above, so below. There is always, you know, the laws that inhabit this plane inhabits the higher and the lower planes, but they just manifest themselves differently. And I think that, you know, some people are just naive. It's like the, the naive kid who doesn't believe that the world is evil. And there's no, no matter what you tell him about the, the corrupt powers that be, he won't listen to you. And that, that's kind of like the equivalent to maybe, maybe the new age person who's just grown up with lovey-dovey reality their whole life. And they've never really experience the underworld i'm just talking about in this physical reality you know what i mean it, and i think that really yeah. plays a part because like yeah uh but yeah just that whole as above so below but something actually just before we go into the the new age jesus myths what are your thoughts on like shamans for example using the jesus christ within their ikaros because there was this one shaman for example who i met earlier this year and he used to be a brujo, which is a, a bad, evil shaman. So he was practicing witch, like evil, evil shit, man. Like these guys would go into the astral planes and try to, you know, destroy other shamans because they're making more money on their retreat or whatever it is, right? And then he actually got saved by dieting the Bible because they do plant dietas where they just commune with one plant and he did the Bible. So he just read that every single day and now he's like, you know, a, like a good shaman. And he uses a lot of, he uses the power of Jesus Christ to repel all the evil spirits and stuff. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I would say, um, I would say God is light and in him there is no darkness. I would, that's a verse, another verse is what fellowship does light have darkness, and, what accord does and Christ and have dark, with you? Darkness, by the way, is not, well, the way I understand it, it's, it's the absence of light. Would, would you say that? Yeah, and, and, and by light, we would have to define what we mean by light, love, and truth. Mm. I mean, because the Bible says that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. Mm -hmm. That's his methodology, right? So if Satan came on the scene and started erecting Baphomet statues everywhere, he's going to give his identity away. It's a dead giveaway, mm. right? So how does Satan get into people's lives and people's minds when they are more well-intentioned than that? Maybe mm. kinder people, more loving peace, pe people. He's going to take a false light approach, mm. and Jesus tells us there will be there will be many false Christs who will come. They're, they they will perform signs and wonders too, and he's like, don't believe them. Right? The Bible tells us to test every spirit, because there's going to be many deceiving spirits, um, and we have to use a process of discernment. And discernment would be holding these um, practices and experiences up against the light of God's word. And so when it comes to, you know, shamans using Jesus in their ayahuasca ceremony, sorry, I would say we have a plethora of verses. We talked about this a little bit when, when we spoke, and maybe we'll come back to it later more thoroughly, but we have, we have a plethora of verses that tell us, you know, um, to not be intoxicated, 
Um, the Greek word there is methe. It refers to any kind of intoxication with any substance, not just alcohol. We have commands to be sober-minded um, and sober, um, about four or five of them. Um, we have commands issued against pharmakia in the Greek, uh, which is the use of drugs. And it's funny because I was just watching a, a documentary on Jesus being a mushroom, and they were appealing. <laughs> Sorry, this makes me laugh. And they were, <laughs> they were, they were using they were using the word pharmakia as kind of like an apologetic for that worldview. And I was like, well, don't you know that in Galatians 5:19 it says pharmakia is a work of the flesh, and those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I would say that. If, if the Bible tell, if, if the people of God in Scripture never did these things, the only people who did them historically were the peoples whom God told told His people to be distinct from, and to look different from, and practice spirituality different from. And we have all these commands for sobriety and to flee intoxication. And then you have someone who's like, "No, well, let's take massive amounts of ayahuasca and let's go interact in the spirit world, and don't worry, I'm going to use the name of Jesus to protect you from demons as your." you know, transgressing these commandments of God to be sober and to not have the use of drugs and to be sober and so forth. I, I would say you've got, you've got a different Christ. Hmm. You know, Jesus says there's many Christs. Well, which one's the real one? Hmm. you got the Christ of Theosophy. you got the Christ of Deepak Chopra. <laughs> you have the Christ of Krishnamurti and the Christ of um, uh, Yogananda, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. You have different interpretations and variations of Christ, and I believe different spirits who impersonate Jesus operating behind these different versions. That's what the Bible says. Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. And, you know, so which one's the real one? Who's got the real guy? Hmm. Right? We need to refer to what Jesus said about himself and how Jesus lived his life, his ministry, his commands, and and appeal to him in his own words. Um, And that needs to be our interpretive standard by which we assess all these other variations of Christ that come into the fold. And and how do you know that that whatever is written in scripture is true? Like you know, first like you know th- something that might come up is oh it's it's still like yeah it might be the word of God but it's still it's still written by man and then they get translated and corrupted and it's changed so many times and like how how do you know how could you possibly say that this is the word of God? Right. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, I do believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe it's the word of cover to cover, but we don't even have to believe the Bible is a word of God just to know that Jesus of Nazareth as a historical figure didn't teach those things, hmm. right? Believing the Bible is reliable or divinely inspired is a completely different matter than believing that, hey, it just has some historical documents that, that tell us some things that we can know for certain mm-hmm. about the life of Jesus, right? So when it comes to the, the New Testament, the, the, the Gospels, which record Jesus' life, how do we know that these things are are reliable? If how we know they're divinely inspired would be a different question. I would say that's ultimately made known to us by the Spirit of God, um, but also divine prophecy, biblical prophecy helps with that, and there's other ways we can get there. But we can simply know uh, by applying the criteria of authenticity, its historical methodology, to these documents, treating them as any kind of historical document the way any historian does. And there's some criteria we're going to look at in any historical text to assess whether or not it's reliable. And by non-Christians so too, right? It, by non-Christians, mm-hmm. this is what you would apply to any historical text. You'd, yeah. want to, you'd want to look at, for example, are these particular claims or stories or narratives, do we have 
independent and early attestation. So anyways, and, and in other words, do these claims and stories appear in multiple sources, which are early to the time in which they are said to have occurred? Hmm. If so, that greatly increases the chance that this is in fact a historical account being given, mm. right? If you have 10 sources saying the same thing within 30 years of an event having happened, it happened. Mm. Most historians will base narratives that they draw about people like Tacitus or Alexander the Great um, or others based on, you know, one or two sources. So with Jesus, we have four ancient biographies. Mm -hmm. We have letters, epistles that were written after, or not after, some before, some after, some of the biographies, which give us further data points that correspond to one another. And we have to understand this too. It's not like someone sat down one day and said, I'm writing the Bible, <laughs> right? Like there's 27 different books of the New Testament. All of them were written by various authors at various times. And when they were writing these things, um, you know, nobody knew that they would eventually be collected under one cover and be called the New Testament hmm. hundreds of years later. There's just a bunch of documents being, you know, Paul's writing a letter to Corinth. Paul's writing a letter to uh, Ephesus. You know, then you have Peter writing a letter over here. Then you have the author of Hebrews writing a letter over there. And you have Mark writing his gospel over here. And you have all these letters spreading, 27 different letters of them written by different authors. And later, someone collected all these different historical documents together, mm -hmm. put them under a cover called the New Testament. So how do we know that the data points they reveal to us about Christ are reliable, early and independent attestation, which, by the way, we confirm can confirm from pagan, secular Roman historians and Jewish historians as well, who tell us some of these same basic outlines of Jesus' story, which we'll get into. Um, embarrassment is another criteria of authenticity. If an event is kind of like awkward or counterproductive for persons to actually say, it's highly unlikely that that was being made up. For mm. example, the Bible says that uh, Jesus' empty tomb was discovered by a group of his women followers. Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian, tells us, as other sources do, that the testimony of women was regarded very lowly in the ancient world. Sometimes you would need two women to equal the testimony of one man. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that women were the ones described as discovering the empty tomb of Jesus. If someone was trying to create a, a made-up, believable narrative about the resurrection of Jesus, they're not going to pick someone who couldn't even testify in the court of law as the one to discover the empty tomb. Women weren't able to. Mm. They're going to pick someone like a man, some reliable guy. But no, it was women who discovered. So that's a criteria of embarrassment. Another one would be enemy attestation. If the enemies of the people are also affirming some of these different facts, these different data points, such as Josephus, a Jewish historian, and Jewish people were enemies of Christians. They thought Christ was a blasphemer. Mm. Um, you know, I believe it's Matthew records that the response that um, the Roman soldiers gave when they were, you know, uh, telling others that the tomb was empty was that, you know, the disciples stole the body. So they're actually affirming the tomb was empty. They were trying to give an account for the empty tomb. The enemies of Jesus themselves were saying, yeah, the tomb's empty. That's because the disciples store the body. They're trying to come up with some other narrative. So the fact that the enemies attested to the empty tomb greatly raises the historical viability of the claim that the tomb was found empty. Enemy annotations, a third one. A fourth one would be dissimilarity. 
if it's unlike previous traditions and previous teachings to believe such a thing, it's dissimilar. It's mm. much less likely to have been made up. So for example, Jesus bodily resurrection from the dead. That was the claim they were making. That was unheard of in Jewish resurrection belief. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection at all. And the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, but they thought it would happen to all people at all places at all times at the same time. The idea that the resurrection started with one man hmm. and that the resurrection happened, it was fulfilled in one man, completely dissimilar hmm. to Jewish beliefs. So that raises the historicity of that too. So the fact is, when you apply these criteria of authentic, you just treat them as you would any historical document. Right. Right. And, and you apply these criteria of authenticity <clears throat> to the gospel accounts, the New Testament documents, the way you would any other historical document, you're coming away with five primary data points agreed upon by the majority of New Testament scholars, atheists, Jewish, Christian, you name it. Mm. Mike Lacona says 99% of scholars agree with these facts about Jesus. Mm. Jesus' death by crucifixion, Jesus' burial in a tomb, mm -hmm. Jesus was found empty by a group of his women followers, Jesus' post-mortem appearances, caused people to believe he had risen and appeared to them. And the fifth point would be the conversion of early Jews to Christians, such as Jesus' brother James. Ooh. He went from being an unbeliever to a believer. The Apostle Paul went from being an unbeliever after into a believer. Why? For believing Jesus had risen and appeared to them. It resulted in conversions. These are five facts agreed upon by the majority of historians, including atheists, um, Jewish scholars, and so forth. So when it comes to the question of, you know, all we do is apply the criteria of authenticity historically to these documents and treat them the way we would any other work mm -hmm. of history. We come away with a set of facts that most historians agree upon that, that meet these criteria. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, what's the best explanation for these facts? And, you know, we have some very powerful claims coming from different scholars. I want to read just a few here. Um, actually, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to that, but you asked, how do we know it's reliable? We have to keep in mind, too, that these documents were written very, very early to the life of Jesus, shockingly early. So when it comes to Buddha, for example, the mm. closest text we have written to the life of Buddha was written 400 years after his death. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's heaps. Four centuries. I didn't even know yeah, that. Yeah, four centuries. And, and it's funny because like, you can always play this, the skeptic card, right? That's why there's no matter what evidence that is, bring, is brought forth because, I mean, the very fact that there's flat earthers on this planet just kind of proves that. You know what I mean? Like, you can always play that game. But I th what my challenge is, at least be consistent with your skepticism. So if you, don't, if you deny the existence of Christ as a real person, and you don't even have to be Christian to believe this, right? then you should, by definition, deny the existence of Buddha, right? Because there's way less evidence for the existence of Buddha than there is Christ. But there's so many theories about Christ being that he never existed. Yet I haven't heard of any that Buddha didn't exist. Why is that? Exactly. Exactly. Well, I want to, I want to, we'll get into the, uh, I guess I'm, I'm the, getting too ahead of myself. Sorry. I could have yeah. Yeah. Myself yeah. Down. We'll get in, we'll get into the evidence for, uh, for right. Jesus, but it, 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 we'll get into that in just a sec. But in regards to like the, the question of like, well, how do we know that these texts are reliable at all? Why should we consider what they have to say at all? Mm -hmm. 
Well, consider the text that ca that came about the Buddha 400 years later. Alexander the Great, his biography written by Plutarch didn't come till 400 years after, and historians still regard this as a reliable text to tell us about the basics of the life of Alexander the Great and his right. conquest. And, and so no one forth. denies his existence. And no one denies his existence or says he's a mushroom. And with Jesus... <laughs> he's a mushroom. And, and with Jesus, we have the Gospel of Mark written within 30 years or less from the death of Jesus. So our first Gospel account, our first biography of Jesus, 30 years or less, written by a companion of Jesus' disciple Peter, was written by Mark, a companion of Peter. We, so it was written by either by a companion of the eyewitness mm -hmm. during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. All the Gospels were. Some may have even been written by eyewitnesses themselves, such as Matthew and John, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John. These may have been eyewitnesses themselves. Mm. But at the very least, they're written during the lifetime as I, by other eyewitnesses, and in some cases by the companion or by eyewitnesses themselves. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians was written in AD 51. Jesus is believed to have died in either 30 AD or 33 AD. Mm. So that's, that's 21 years. Some of his letters, like his letter to the Galatians, date within 20 years. But here's the bombshell. There is a creed, an oral creed Paul quotes from in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the beginning of the creed. He says this. He says, for what I passed on to you as a first importance, or sorry, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. And then he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are living, though some have fallen asleep. Scholars have looked at the grammatical structure of that and came to the conclusion that this is not Paul. Paul's talking about something he received. Hmm. I delivered to you what I received. What did he receive? A tradition. Hmm. How early does this tradition date? Where is he? Where did he get this tradition from? Atheist scholars believe he received this tradition with a meeting he had with Jesus' brother James and Jesus' disciple Peter in Jerusalem in 35 AD. Gerd Ludemann, an atheist historian, says the elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. Um, there's other scholars we could quote. We could quote 12 other scholars dating this to within just a few years. So basically, we have a news flash from the ancient world telling us about the death of Jesus for sin, the resurrection of Jesus. It's likening to the Old Testament. Dude, I have to, we'll have to edit this. I have to pee so bad. Yeah, yeah, I'll go, for it, go for it, go for it. <laughs> I'll go back and finish that out. Yeah, we'll yeah. cut it this yeah, way. It's all good, it's all good. We'll edit it out. <laughs> welcome, the world, welcome. The world's small. <laughs> so basically, what we have with Paul's Creed here is basically a news flash from the ancient world. Um, he's telling us that Jesus died for human sin, rose, and then made appearances to people in accordance with the scriptures, which means the Old Testament prophecies. And this is a tradition that was circulating around Jerusalem, as scholars would agree, within two to three years after the death of Jesus. This means this isn't a later development. Hmm. This means that this isn't something invented by the Romans to control people. This isn't well, a game, this isn't a game of telephone where you know things get work, you know, legends develop over time. We're talking about the essentials of the gospel being communicated through oral tradition dating back to within two years. Hmm. And, and, that, and that hasn't changed 
today, like the, the Bible that you read today, has that changed at all through its no. original no, it, form? Yeah. No, it hasn't changed because here's what we have. So we have just under 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Mm. So the New Testament was originally written in Greek. We have 6,000 New Testament manuscripts that are on average 200 pages long each. Mm. We have just a plethora of documents and pages. When we compare them with one another, some of which are very early, some of which are extremely early. The earliest would be a fragment, a papyri fragment known as P52, um, coming from John chapter 8. It was the, the papyri fragment is believed to date to 125 AD. John's gospel dates to 90 AD. We have, a, we have a very, very early fragment. But when we look at all these fragments, all these documents, um, whether we're looking at earlier ones or later ones, we're looking at like 99.9% similarity hmm. in what they have to say. We have textual variants, which can be worked out through a process of elimination. For example, if 100 documents say um, Jesus went to the water, for example, and then two documents say Jesus went to the waffle, like we know what it's trying to say. It's just a scribal error in the document. We know what the original would have said. Hmm. And so that gets weeded out with a, a process of textual criticism. But the point is we have, we have too many. We have too many documents written by too many people, too, too many different places for the Bible to have changed. We can, we can look all these, most of these papyri are, are scanned and readable online. You can look at these papyri and go bring them to any Greek scholar in the world bring them a ESV translation or a New American Standard Bible translation and say, do these papyri documents correspond to what's being said? They're like, yeah, that's a good translation. Yeah, that works. Wow. And that doesn't include an additional 26,000 or so um, Aramaic and Hebrew manuscripts of the New Testament, which mm. were copied from the Greek, also correspond to the Greek. And here's another interesting thing. We can reconstruct over 97% of the New Testament, just on the basis of quote, just by um, compiling quotes from the early church fathers alone. Hmm. So what that means is that the disciples themselves had disciples, okay? So the Apostle John, for example, he's a disciple. He studied under Jesus. He went and taught Polycarp. We have Polycarp's writings. Polycarp went and discipled, I want to say, Ignatius. We have some of Ignatius' writings. We can reconstruct all the early church fathers, the disciples of the disciples and their disciples. Prior to the Council of Nicaea, people say, well, the Bible was invented at the Council of Nicaea. That's not true. You had what are called codexes, mm. like books of New Testament documents completed prior to the Council that the church was already quoting from as being Scripture, preaching out of, quoting from and saying, thus saith the Lord. But from the anti-Nicene fathers, pre-Nicene councils, what that means, anti-Nicene fathers, we can reconstruct virtually the entire New Testament just from quoting from what the disciples of the disciples said. Mm. So you, we have so many problems if we want to say the original texts were corrupted, because those who are right, those who studied under the apostles themselves are quoting the very things that our Bible quotes. Hmm. Right. So it's it's a what we have is a chain of custody is what it's called in the court of law. We have our modern Bible, and we can read our modern Bible. We can trace it back throughout history. What these church fathers were saying, 
after Nicaea, before Nicaea, getting closer and closer to the time of the event, those who knew the disciples, those who studied under the disciples, those who were ordained bishops by the disciples, mm. to the disciples themselves, and it all corroborates one another. And we have too many manuscripts. We just have, we simply have too many manuscripts. If you want to say one manuscript or 10 manuscripts were corrupted, well, you're going to have 30,000 that aren't corrupted and they wouldn't be. And here's the thing. Why would people corrupt them? Hmm. They didn't know that this was going to be a world religion that would take over the Western world. They didn't know this. They didn't know if this was a cult that would die off in 20 years. Hmm. They didn't know which letters were included in scripture later. The Romans had no idea. The Romans didn't know which books were going to be, um, you know, considered divinely inspired and which ones were written by inspired men. Hmm. So why would they just randomly start tampering with manuscripts? There's too many of them to tamper with. And if you tamper with them, we're talking about ink on papyri. You can tell when something's been tampered. Wow. So they would receive the letters and be like, this is tampered with. I'm not reading it. Yeah. And other eyewitnesses are still alive to be able to say, hey, that's not actually what Jesus said. Hey, you know, like they were alive still. Like they could, they could check you. They could check these letters and be like, "No, that's not true." Wasn't Jesus' brother so, alive when he got crucified? Is that true? Jesus' brother was alive when he got crucified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just the the same with other holy books that say like, uh, and I say holy with the quotation marks, uh, like the Quran or Bhagavad Gita. Is there, like, for example, the Bible? You're saying that there's so many different sources from believers, unbelievers, enemies, friends, all put together, compiling this one book. Could you say that's the case with these other books? I'm not sure the the method of, um, you know, production of various other holy books. Mm. Um, but I know, speaking of the Quran, you know, w one thing that really concerns me about. Uh, the Quran's account of Jesus, historically speaking, we have at least 12 to 15 sources historically for the crucifixion of Jesus. Is there physical evidence on that, the actual crucifixion? That's a good question. So we would, be, we would want to be looking for what constitutes historical evidence. Okay. Not that, like, so we might not have a piece of a cross that says this is the cross of Jesus, um, but historians don't need that. Historians don't need a coin or some tangible um, piece of archaeological evidence. Historical manuscript evidence is good enough mm. if it matches the criteria of authenticity, mm. right? Yeah. Multiple, independent, early attestation, embarrassment, dissimilarity, and so forth. Um, that's what qualifies a document as being historical. So. We have, for like Bart Ehrman, an atheist professor at um, the University of North Carolina, had lists um, 12 different sources for the crucifixion of Jesus. A lot of these come from outside of the Bible. Wow. And, but, here, but the Quran comes along 600 years later and says Jesus never died on a cross. Yeah. He was only made to appear to die on a cross. Mm. And, but, but hold on, we have 12 sources that predate the Quran that say he did. Right? And so when it comes to some of the truth claims of other religions, I would want to know, do you have as much historical evidence and historical support as the claims made about Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth? And speaking about historical evidence, um, I want to quote, this is going to sound a little inflammatory, but this is a, an atheist historian named R. Joseph Hoffman. Okay. He has degrees from both Harvard and Oxford. And here's what he says to say about the idea that Jesus never existed. That's a big claim, right? Jesus didn't exist, and we shouldn't even think about him. Others will say he didn't exist, but his story 
You know, it's a metaphor. He was in existence right. as a historical man. It was meant to be allegorical for a sun cycle or hmm. for a psilocybin trip or something. Right. Um, some astrological uh, account of, you know, the sun interacting with various constellations that are, represent the disciples or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and so the problem with all this is that if you had a time machine and went back 2,000 years ago, you would see a flesh and blood human being walking the earth. Hmm. That's the problem with this, is that Jesus actually existed as a historical man. And we know this <clears throat> because we have 43 independent sources for the existence of Jesus within just the first 150 years of his life, more than anyone else in the ancient world. Well, and, and like Bart you said, Earth, different sources from like enemies, for, like it's not just one group. So that that's the thing, like an enemy saying this stuff. Yeah, and we're going to look at lot. some of that. Yeah, yeah we're going to look at some of that. Here's what Joseph Hoffman says about the idea that Jesus never existed. Um, he says, only in an age of instant misinformation and net attack is this kind of idiocy possible. Only in the atheist universe where the major premise, religion is a lie, so the study of religion is a study of lying, infects everything. Is this kind of lunacy mm. possible? Bart Ehrman, another atheistic scholar, says... This is not an issue for scholars. There is no scholar in any college or university who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, who doubts that Jesus existed. He is abundantly attested in early sources. Early and independent sources indicate that Jesus certainly existed. Paul is an eyewitness to both Jesus' disciple and the brother of Jesus. There is not a single mythicist, as they're called, people who believe Jesus was a myth, who teaches New Testament or early Christianity, or even classics at any accredited institution of higher learning in the Western world, whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. Here's actually a, a quote from Graham Clark. He's a, a professor of classical history at Australian National University. Oh, um, I'm not sure where that is in your area. He says, frankly, I know of, I know of no ancient historian or biblical historian who would have a twinge of doubt about the existence of a Jesus Christ. Hmm. These guys who are atheist historians, they don't even know of any. They don't even know of any. Wow. Gerd Ludemann, another atheist historian, professor at the University of Göttingen, he says that Jesus' death as a consequence of, cru of crucifixion is indisputable. Now, here's a really good one. So this is Ed Parrish Sanders, right? He is a uh, New Testament scholar, um, former arts and sciences professor of religion, at Duke University, here's what he says. I shall offer a list, again, he's not a believer. I shall offer a list of statements about Jesus that meet two standards. They are almost beyond dispute and they belong to the framework of his life and especially of his public career. Jesus was born 4 BCE, near the time of the death of Herod the Great. He spent his childhood and early adult years in Nazareth, Nazareth a Galilean village. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He called disciples. He taught in towns, villages, and the countryside of Galilee. He preached the kingdom of God. About year 30, he went to Jerusalem for Passover. He created a disturbance in the temple area. He had a final meal with the disciples. He was arrested and interrogated by Jewish authorities, specifically the high priest. He was executed on the orders of the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. And then he says this, historical reconstruction is never absolutely certain and in the case of Jesus, um, you know, sometimes highly uncertain. 
Mm. He's just being honest. But he says, despite this, we have a good idea of the main lines of his ministry and his message. We know who he was, what he did, what he taught, and why he died. Um, and so, you know, this idea that Jesus didn't really exist as a, as a physical man and that we can't know that he gathered disciples and it's all a metaphor. The fact is we have source after source after source in the ancient world that have convinced all of contemporary mm. skeptical scholarship that not only did Jesus exist, but he died on a cross. That means it can't be an allegory for the death of the, uh, I don't know, the egoic self mm. and some kind of process of uh, death and rebirth and illumination and the resurrection from the dead doesn't refer to higher consciousness. If we're talking about a physical man who walked the physical earth, and if we took a time machine, we would see a man dying on a cross and a mm. tomb empty. Just like these historians are saying now, why are they saying this? Again, because these data points of the life of Jesus, when you look at the historical documents we have available, they meet the criteria of authenticity. Now, I want to prove that by quoting from non-Christian historians, just so people can have like um, an appreciation. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. as soon as you're a Christian already, people are like, no, nah, I don't believe you because you're a Christian. You're biased, right? So, right. Yeah, it's good but to think, get other but think sources. About, it's good to get other sources, but think about this for a minute. The issue of bias. First of all, the criteria of authenticity is meant to control for bias. Mm. And even when historians apply the criteria of authenticity to the Gospels, they're coming away with those minimalist facts, the crucifixion, the burial, the empty mm. tomb, the post-mortem appearances— Mike Lacona has said that 99% of historians, whether atheist or Jewish, believe that the disciples had experiences that caused them to believe Jesus had risen and appeared to them. Hmm. Now, whether or not that was because Jesus actually did rise from the dead, or it was a hallucination, or a mass illusion, or a collective dream, however you want to explain it, but the fact that these things happened, we can deduce this by applying the criteria of authenticity to the text and the controls for bias. So say they were biased. And they were biased. Some of them were. Luke was trying to convince Theophilus, for example, of of Jesus and was trying to, you know, report to him what he saw and experienced so that he would believe. Right. And, you know, the Apostle John would say, you know, little children, I write these things to you that you would believe. The question is, are they reporting accurately or not, despite mm. their bias? And when you that's that's where the criteria for authenticity comes into play. But think about this. And, and so even with the bias there, and obviously we're going to try and minimize it, the historians still agree these are the essential facts of Jesus' life, and we can create a, a case for the resurrection of Jesus on the basis of just those facts, biased mm -hmm. or not. But think about this. Okay, so let's say you watched um, a robbery take place at a local convenience store. Let's say the guy who robbed the convenience store was named Robert Smith, and you saw everything with your own eyes, you heard everything with your own eyes, now, people were still trying to decide, did he really rob the convenience store or not, right? We don't know. That's what's being you know, discussed in the courtroom right now. But you, because you were there, because of what you saw and you heard, you are fully convinced that he did rob the convenience store. You have a bias toward Robert Smith being a criminal because of what you heard mm. and saw. We can even say that you're a Robert Smithian. You're Robert Smithian now Robert's because, of, because of what you saw and heard, right? Yeah, yeah. so imagine going to the court of law and someone comes up to you and asks you what Robert did. And 
because of what you saw and heard, you're, you're convinced he's a guilty criminal. And just like the disciples, because of what they saw and heard, they are convinced Jesus was, you know, God in the flesh and the sacrifice for human sin. And people say, well, no, you, we, we're not going to take your testimony about Robert Smith because you're biased. Mm. You have a bias against him because of what you saw and heard. But you're a Robert Smithian. I can't trust a Robert Smithian to tell me anything incredible about Robert Smith. The people, mm. people were Christians because of what they saw and heard. So, yes, they're going to have a bias on the basis of what they saw and heard, but it doesn't take away from the data points that they're presenting to us about the life of Jesus. Right. And not to mention now, these disciples have died to, to spread this gospel and knowingly. So even that says a lot. It does say a lot. It says a lot when like anybody will die for an ideology mm. or for a belief system. But what makes Christianity different is that they were dying for the belief that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to them. Mm. They weren't dying for an ideology. They were dying because they believed they experienced something. Mm. All of them believe they experienced something. They believe that 500 at once experienced something. They believe they ate with him. They drank with him. Jesus ate fish with them in his resurrected body. They believed that they touched him. Mm. Jesus says, you know, Thomas put his hand into his side, for example. And I want to say John chapter 22. He put his hand into his side. He touched Jesus. He was physically with them. So their belief was not just, they weren't dying for an ideology. They're like, no, we saw Jesus. He was with us. There's at least at least 12 different um, resurrection appearances listed in the Gospels, right? We're not talking about just one event. We're talking about multiple appearances spread out over a 40-day period, indoors and outdoors, hmm. to men and women, to groups and individuals, to unbelievers and believers, the scope and variety of the resurrection appearances is too much to just dismiss as being, you know, some kind of hallucination or, you know, some kind of group dream. There's no such thing as a group hallucination. Hallucinations are private experiences. Mm. And if it's some kind of vision that they're having, a vision of someone who died, because some people will have visions of, of deceased loved ones um, after they pass because of trauma. It's just something the brain does to help soothe trauma. But visions confirm that the person, in fact, died. Mm. Visions prove death. People say, I saw their spirit, right? They know they're dead, but they say, oh, I saw him for a bit. I saw his spirit. Their experiences of Jesus' resurrection caused them to believe he rose from the dead. Like physically in a, in a body, yeah. Physically in a body. It wasn't just that they saw a spirit of Jesus. Right, an ethereal floating Gas no. thing. Yeah, right. And and they weren't dying for an ideology. They were dying because they believed they saw Jesus physically risen, physically appearing to them. And you have 500 witnesses who were alive at the time Paul wrote his creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, that creed dates back to within two years. Hmm. It's a news flash from the ancient world that Jesus appeared to over 500. So here's a question. Well, first of all, I want to quote from some Jewish historians and so forth and, and secular historians just to bring this to life for people, because this is it's not just scripture telling us mm. these data points about the life of Jesus. Right. You have tasks. Because I've heard, I've heard someone say, like put an analogy like, oh, yeah, but it's all in the Bible. You know, that's like DC com comics proving that Superman exists by referring to DC comics, you know, which I found like kind of a silly analogy, because like you said, it's, it comes from multiple, multiple sources, not just one person. Or a group of people. Right. 
Right. Well, let's go back to the year 100 AD when all of the books of the New Testament were written, but they weren't yet put under a cover called the New Testament. And all you had was 27 different hmm. sources circulating around the ancient world. They weren't put under a cover yet. It was just 27 independent letters spread out all over the place, and scribes would copy them and try to spread them to other places and other churches. So in AD 100, you don't have the Bible. You have the Hebrew Bible, but you don't have the New Testament, and you don't have the New Testament put together with the Old Testament. All you have is 27 different letters mm. that are spreading all over the place, written either by eyewitnesses or companions of the eyewitnesses during the lifetimes of eyewitnesses. So why would these documents all of a sudden just become one source or all of a sudden lose their credibility as historical sources just because 200 years after they were written, someone, some people got together and put them under one cover and called it the New Testament. Yeah. That doesn't gotcha. make sense. Yeah, and even though the whole bias thing, like just because you're biased, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're spreading lies or you're, you know, you're not telling the truth. I mean, I'm sure mathematicians are very, very biased towards maths, but you can prove it whether you believe it or not. You know, I'm not trying to say that, you know, mathematics equals Jesus, but it just goes to show that just because you're biased, it doesn't necessarily mean it's false. But I actually want to talk about, uh, well, let's touch on Jesus was a mushroom. How did this even spread? It's not that, like, I, I even understand, like, okay, psychedelics being used in the Bible, but him actually being a mushroom, like he wasn't a person. Well, we've already kind of proven that he was a person, but how did this mushroom theory even spread to begin with i don't i don't know the history of the mushroom theory i know that there's like a primary work uh, i forget the guy's name that kind john, of like launched john allegro this. or something oh he wrote Maybe. a book something like that yeah yeah i don't know but uh, the reason why it could be propagated and actually survive would be just um i don't mean to be like um arrogant but it would be just a basic ignorance of of history of of ancient history like the only reason that a theory like this could get off the ground is because people haven't looked into the historical evidence for a physical, literal, historical man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived in the, in the first century, who gathered disciples and so forth. So, you know, people have been trying to, um, you know, treat Jesus as some kind of like an analogy for different areas of the psyche. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm thinking of maybe Carl Jung. Um who took more of like a symbolic archetypal approach to understanding Jesus. But again, I'm, I'm sorry, we just have too many sources saying he lived and walked the earth as a man. Mm. So if, if these theories are surviving and propagating, it's only because we haven't examined the available history in the public domain. Yeah, fair enough. And, and what about uh, Buddha? Why, why, isn't, why, why aren't there theories of Buddha being a metaphor? Um. Not that I've well, heard it, anyway. it, Yeah, I know. I, I haven't heard anything with that. I've never heard someone want to say, you know, Jesus was an Old Testament Jew who practiced animal sacrifice, but people want to say Jesus was actually a Hindu or a yogi or a Buddha or, you know, some other weird interpretation. And it's like, why is there always this desire to try to account or twist, you know, the person of Jesus? Hmm. What's wrong with the documents we have? Nobody's challenging the documents we have for Buddha or Muhammad, for that matter. They're fine just taking them and their words at face value. But there's always, even though we have more documents and earlier documents written by people who were closer to the events or witnessed the events, we treat them 
with a much higher degree of skepticism than anyone else, such that if we applied that standard to other ancient figures, such mm. as Alexander the Great, Buddha, Socrates, Plato, we'd have to say nobody existed. Mm. In the, well, everyone's a mushroom. Exactly. Everyone's right. a metaphor. Like, at least be consistent with your logic. That's what, that's what I always say to people. You know, like, deny everything you want, but at least use that same logic to other other historical events, you know? Right. Like, I would say, like, when it comes to, you know, Jesus, for example, here's a quote from a Roman historian named Tacitus. He wrote this A.D. 115, so less than 100 years after Jesus. He was known for his reliability, too. He said, Christus, um, the founder of the name, he's referencing Christianity. He just referenced Christians. So Christus, the mm. founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. So we have the name Jesus, his name being associated with Christians, and his Was it death. originally Yeshua? What was the, the OG? In, in, in Hebrew, it would have been Yeshua. Okay. Um, but the reason we say Jesus is because, like the letter J didn't exist until, I don't know, what the English language was invented. But the, the New Testament manuscripts would have been written in Koine Greek, and Jesus' name in Koine Greek is Jesus, not uh, Jesus, as some other people try and twist it. It's two different, uh, you know, words. South America, yeah, it's not a, lot of people, a lot of people named Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a common name. There's actually another person in the Bible whose name is Jesus. Uh, Jesus called Justice, and then he goes on. It's just in passing. It's like, but Jesus transliterated to English, like syllable, or sorry, consonant for consonant, mm. gives us Jesus. So that's okay. where the name comes from when we try to transliterate Greek into English. And, and why, yeah, do, so why do people Hebrew. depict Jesus as like, or some churches like blue eyes, super pale skin, blonde hair? Yeah, well, that would just be the um, <laughs> the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church yeah. okay. throughout okay. the Middle Ages. And they were Europeans, and so they had a European bias. He would have been a Middle Eastern Jew. Right. It, it's it's had, not just white people know, claiming Jesus was white. It also goes the other way. Like, I'm sure there are some black people who claim that he was, like, African black, too. There are, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've encountered a lot of them, and they say Jesus was a black man, and the white man's evil, and, you know... The black people are the real Jews and the real saved ones and all this stuff. And it's like the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek for all are one in Christ Jesus. Like, where are you getting this idea of racial? Mm. If you if God doesn't care about race. Exactly. And people always make it about race at the end. I always laugh at that. Yeah. But when we have like, here's another Roman historian um, who named Suetonius, who in 122 AD says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the investigation of Christus, he, meaning Nero, expelled them for Rome. He's just, again, in passing, just mentioning Christ in passing. The Jews were making a disturbance about Jesus, and he just kind of mentions it in passing, and that goes a long way with historians, because it shows they're not trying to create a case for the person they're talking about. Mm. It's just mentioned casually in passing as part of a, a broader discussion, and the Apostle Paul does this, too, and historians love this stuff. When he says, and yeah, I went and I saw Peter and I saw James, the brother of our Lord. And then he goes on to talking about something else. He uses, it's just so casual, mm. right? And that gives credence to the idea that this, they are in fact, you know, relaying something historical to us because they're not trying to create a case for it. It's just such a casual one-off thing for them. Um, here's another quote from Pliny, governor of Bithynia in 106 AD. 
um, he explained that he himself forced Christians to curse Christ, to curse Christ, which a genuine Christian cannot be induced to do. He also says they affirmed, however, that the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in a habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang an alternate hymn, sorry, an alternate verse, a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves to a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, uh, never to falsify their word, not to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. So basically, he's speaking about the Christian's behavior to sing to Christ, and he was trying to get people to deny Christ. Mm. Mezabar Serapian, a philosopher in Syria in the first century, said, what advantage did the Jews gain from ex executing their wise king? Josephus, a Jewish historian, in A.D. 93 to 94, he says this, as therefore uh, uh, Ananas was of such a disposition, he thought he had now a good company, as Festus was now dead, and Albinus was still on the road. So he assembled a council of judges and brought it before the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, whose name was James, together with some others, and having accused them as lawbreakers, he delivered them over to be stoned. So we're hearing about James and the brother of the so-called Christ, Jesus, coming from Josephus. Here's another quote from Josephus, Jewish historian. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be, called, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. So just from... Josephus alone, just from Josephus alone, a Jewish historian, not a Christian historian, we learn Jesus had a brother named James, who was an important member of the church. Jesus was a wise and virtuous man, or at least known as such. He had disciples from Jews and Gentiles. He was called the Christ by some. He was a worker of surprising deeds, which may have been a, a reference to miracles. He was executed by Pilate by means of crucifixion. And he was prompted in part by the leaders among the Jews. His execution was prompted in part by the leaders of the Jews. And Christians were named from him. Hmm. So when it comes to, you know, well, you just believe what you believe because, you know, the Bible says so. I would say, well, the Bible is a collection of independent early documents written either by eyewitnesses or during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And these same data points that I believe, these are reflected in all kinds of ancient sources in the pagan world. Hmm. Suetonius, Tacitus, Josephus, early church fathers, those who studied under the disciples are saying that Jesus did and taught the same thing that the Bible does. And so we just we have too much in, we have too much information about Jesus coming from too many historical sources to say it was just all made up, it's just all a metaphor, it's all a figment of people's imaginations. Um, those ideas simply can't get off the ground. We know what he said, we know what he taught, we have his words written by people who actually sat under him. Now here's the question, what exactly did he teach? Hmm. That's the quite real question we have to wrestle with. Yeah, these documents are reliable. Yeah, they're early. Yeah, they meet the criteria of authenticity. And yeah, these data points, at least the core of them, are reflected in other sources in the ancient world. Now, what did he teach about himself, about God, about human salvation? 
And also, what's the best explanation we have for those five facts concerning his resurrection, hmm. right? Crucifixion, burial, empty tomb, post-mortem appearances to people that caused them to believe Jesus had risen and appeared to them, and then conversions of unbelievers to the point that they were willing to be tortured, imprisoned, and die for the belief that they saw Jesus and risen and appeared to them. What's the best explanation? Well, how about the one given by the eyewitnesses themselves? Mm. But Jesus did, in fact, rise and appear to them. Now, that has very big implications. If Jesus rose from the dead and his entire ministry circulated around teachings about him being the Messiah and the kingdom of God being inaugurated with him and his life and his ministry and him being sent from God, speaking the words of God, doing the words of God, being the son of God, being able to forgive sins like God, then the resurrection of Jesus in the context of what he taught would be nothing less than God's stamp of divine approval on the ministry of Jesus. It would be God vindicating the message and teaching of Jesus mm. about himself. So the resurrection of Jesus, again, the earliest source we have is Paul's oral creed dating to within two years. Within two years, people are saying Christ is appearing to every, everyone. For He died for our sins, was risen for our sins in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. He appeared to me, appeared to this guy, Stephus, to the 12, to 500 at once. That's within two years, right on top of the events. Right. And these things need to be understood in light of what Jesus taught about himself. If Jesus was raised from the dead, hmm. which he was, that would be God vindicating his teachings, in which case we have we have the Savior of the world on our hands. Hmm. We have the Messiah on our hands. And so, so it's we, not, yeah. but, sorry, so it's, so it's not this Christ consciousness. Like, what is that? What, what is Christ consciousness? Yeah, so Christ consciousness, um, more or less, is the idea that, okay, sure, you know what, we'll, we'll give you a historical Jesus, we'll give you the gathering of disciples, we'll, we'll maybe even give you the resurrection of okay. Jesus from the dead, and the post-mortem appearances. I didn't have any problem with that as a, a New Age teacher. But what really happened here was that the disciples got it wrong. They were confused. Even though they studied with him and sat under him for three years, and everyone who knew him and knew those who knew him were under the exact same impression about what he taught and did and said, and all their disciples were too. Yeah, they all got it wrong. What Jesus was, really, Jesus was really teaching is that man is intrinsically divine by nature. He has access within himself to higher states of consciousness whereby he can obtain union with the divine mm. through accessing higher consciousness. Now, people would say, how do you access that higher consciousness? Meditation, mindfulness, service to, to others, and denying service to self. Really just variations of, you know, um, Hindu paths to moksha and Buddhist paths to nirvana. Mm -hmm. You access higher consciousness where you obtain union and knowledge of the divine that lives within you. Hmm. And you realize, I am God, God is all. And that state of realizing God is all and all is God is, you know, enlightenment. That's called God consciousness. Mm. And because it's the consciousness Christ lived from, people say, well, it's Christ consciousness. Jesus is someone who became Christed when right. he achieved Christ consciousness or God consciousness. And he was someone who was trying to teach and impart this teaching to others. And, you know, the feeble fishermen he gathered were too inept to know what he was really teaching which is some mystical slash esoteric slash 
Eastern worldview, they couldn't understand what he's saying, even though Jesus said that unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he says, let the little children come unto me, for to such as them belong the kingdom of God. So if a little child can't do it, or a little child can't understand it, it's not the gospel according to Jesus. It needs to be simple enough for a little child to understand. Jesus says, let them come to Jesus, to such as them belongs the kingdom. So if the kingdom is some altered higher state of consciousness that is achieved through transcendental meditation or, you know, a DMT trip or something, how do we reconcile with that with Jesus looking at a seven-year-old girl and the kingdom belongs to her? Why? Because she came to me, hmm. right? So, but anyway, so Christ consciousness is this idea that we're all God by nature and that through maybe special knowledge of the self, accessing higher consciousness, adopting service to others, and a Christ-like ethic, we can become God in the flesh. We're already God in the flesh, but we can realize we're God in the flesh, just like Jesus realized it. Through this process of awakening, we can all obtain Christ consciousness, and Jesus came here to teach us and impart that path to us. But now here's—I want to get your comments on this, but here's, here's some problems with that. Hmm. First of all, I think Jesus says something in Matthew 24 that renders Christ consciousness impossible. He says in Matthew 24, verses 3 to 5, it says this, And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Hmm. And Jesus answered them and said to him, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will hmm. deceive many. A lot of New Age teachers. Yes. And, and then what, he says actually something, oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I will. Sorry, I'll let you ask. Uh, just one more quote yeah. from him on this, and I'll let you ask. And he says in verse 23, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there is Christ, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall, shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the elect. So to believe that you are Christ, or that someone else is Christ, is to fall under the warning Jesus gave about deception that will take place in the final, day, on final days. I am Christ wow. is what people will begin to say about themselves to deceive themselves and others, according to Jesus. Wow. So that, that happens a lot, we... man. It happens a lot. Yeah, a, a challenge that I would have for New Age teachers and something that uh, would I even, even when I was uh, completely anti-Christian, is that at least Christians are willing to debate anyone uh, about anything. Whereas a lot of these new age teachers will never do that. If you actually challenge them, hey, do you want to actually go on my podcast? I'd like to challenge you on some of your ideas. I've tried, man. I've tried. I've tried to get Leo Gura on my show multiple times. So really? this, is, this is an open invitation to Leo, actually. I would debate Leo. Yeah. Oh, I can be the mediator. So if he's, yeah, there we go. People, come on. Let's spam him. Because it, it, it really Let's shows. Let's do it. And the thing is, it even shows cause a lot of new age teachers that what really shows their ignorance is they put like Buddha, Christ, Muhammad, whatever word you want to use. Just the fact that they say that kind of stuff is like, wait, hang on. You obviously don't know who Buddha is. You don't know who Jesus is. And you most definitely don't know who Muhammad is. Why are you putting these in the same thing? Like just by reading the, okay, I don't want to just, you know, crap on the Quran, but like, come on, they're completely, I'm just going to say that they're very, very different beings. And fundamentally they're teaching different things. It's not, just the same thing. That's for sure. I know. Just from a logical standpoint, like, you know. 
Right. Just look at what they taught and see how they contradict one another. Like Muhammad was a warlord. And And a pedophile. And yeah, he did. He had sex with children and he had multiple wives and and this is in the Quran, men. by the way, not this isn't like outside Quran. sources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And he allowed his men to, you know, rape the wives and sleep with the wives and of kill unbelievers. Uh, people who he killed. Yeah. He ordered the execution of unbelievers and the forceful overtaking of the world through Sharia law. So he was a he was a warlord and Jesus wasn't. Um, mm. I actually have a, uh, an article on my website called Jesus versus Muhammad, 33 Radical Differences where it goes through their teaching on how they see women, how they see morality, how they see the poor, various differences on teaching. They're not the same people. So then you hear someone like, I heard Muji say, you know, these attacks on the mind, they, they have come against every Buddha, every Jesus, every Muhammad. I mean, why are you putting Muhammad in the category with those two? And why are you, even, why are you putting Jesus in the same category as Buddha too? Buddha left his wife to go navel gaze in the forest <laughs> when she was giving birth to their son. Yeah. And the Bible says that, you know, God won't even hear your prayers if you're neglecting your wife. Mm. God put such a high price on loving your wife, it's stewarding fun, yeah. your relationship with your wife. And Buddha's like, no, I'm, I'm head no, I'm going to go navel gaze and, you know, find the path of, it's all an you illusion. know, enlightenment. It's all an Actually, illusion. Actually, I, I saw sure. this in India a lot. You know, I, I know it's, they're not Buddhist, but just, you know, uh, but a lot of them draw from the same sort of, fundamental teachings uh but i saw a lot of sadhus like that i've talked to i've been in these places i've talked to these people really trying to understand the situation and there's a lot of sadhus man who are homeless they left their families just begging for money and that's like the i'd I'd, like i don't want to judge because who am i to judge i'm just i'm just a dude you know what 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 do i know but i just found that really interesting because i think that's personally for me i think it's like a horrible thing to do to leave your family you know what I mean? Just yeah. Well, just because that's that's the opposite of the biblical ethic. Like yeah, the yeah. primary ministry, the Lord calls us to is the family. Like the method is like, what are you doing? Go home and love your your wife. He also says like, whoever can't provide for his own family or doesn't provide his own family is worse than an infidel. And mm. Paul says, if any man doesn't work, let him not eat. Right. And so basically, wow. Christianity calls you to be the best version of a husband and a provider for your family you can possibly be. Hmm. And we don't see that same kind of like emphasis on loving your children, loving your wife, honoring your parents, honoring widows right. in your family. And if everything is That's... God, then you should love your children as God then, right? Just by from using their logic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that has to start. Yeah. Um, he also says that second greatest <clears throat> commandment next to loving God and that has to start first and foremost with our own family. Mm. So I don't know, like the reason why like, we have such a big burden for love is because we were made for love. Hmm. God is love. We were made to give and receive love with him and with other people. And I think only the Christian worldview can really direct us into fulfilling that desire that we all have for love. Because it calls us to be accountable, to be involved, to be vulnerable. Mm. Whereas like you said, these other people are like, well, I'm going to back out because I have some more important thing right. than loving my moral, moral loving relativism, my... right? There's no such thing as right or wrong. Evil is just a human construct. Duality doesn't exist in the higher planes of consciousness. And this is actually something that the Kabbalion completely debunks. Like, so this is complete. This is 
not Christian at all. This is esoteric and actually the foundation of a lot of occult teachings, but then a lot of occult teachings kind of twist and distort uh, their views. Uh, but even that completely debunks the notion of that you are God, you know what I mean? That evil is just an illusion, so it doesn't matter or whatever. So this is even coming from esoteric books. The best, actually one of the best books that I've read, you know. And people would say like, you know, yeah, morality is relative. I don't believe it. Let's morality is relative, but like, do you really live as though? Exactly. They don't, they, don't, they don't live that way. They say it. That's the thing. Like people say things, but then their actions say the complete opposite. And I'll, you know, and I'm not going to, I'm not a fan of gossip, so I'm not going to call anyone out. But the privilege that I've had even of having this channel is I've, I've met a lot of people in this world. And a lot of them, especially the new age, what identify themselves as new age teachers or spiritual teachers, very dishonest, man. Very, very dishonest. What you see on camera versus what you see on real life is almost night and day. And they'll, they'll even be so, and I would even go as far to say that a lot of them have very, very fragile egos to the point where they won't, they'll delete comments that uh, disagree with them or anything like that. So I'm just yet to meet a new age teacher who's actually genuine, like truly, right. truly genuine and authentic. And if you're out there, please come on. I would love to talk to you. I haven't met every single human being on the planet, but just every single, every person that I've met so far, they haven't been genuine in that way and really honest you know yeah yeah i know i would see that as well and um you know i saw some things in the new age community i was like it was it was worse than it, it was worse than people who have no sense of anything beyond nature it was like to give one example i wrote a an article it was an original article i wrote some of the articles on my website bro they would have millions of shares mm. like not views Facebook shares. Wow. If you look at the share tab, it would say like 4.5 million. That is ridiculous. So the, yeah, so the views would have been, I don't know, tens or hundreds of millions, who knows. But the, one of the articles I wrote did, that did quite well. I believe it was like four signs, this is not your first life. And good title. Uh, I would write good, really good, like. Good clickbaity title. <laughs> you, you can't not click on something like that if you're <laughs> yeah, you a new agent. I want to click on it right now. <laughs> Yeah, I know. So I would, uh, and, and Hebrews nine twenty seven says it's been appointed unto each man to live once, and after that comes the judgment. And Doctor Ian Stevenson actually admitted that a lot of the evidences for reincarnation are just as well explained by um, demonic possession, and in some cases even better explained by demonic possession. Oh. There were some cases where people would say. I have memories of past lives. I used to live in this guy's body, and he died, and then my soul came in. But I have all these memories of being that person. But he would actually go investigate the person they claimed to be and found out that they were still alive when this person was born. Mm. Their lives overlapped. So oh. he couldn't have been this soul from a past life because that person still lived when the new person was born. So you have someone claiming, I have memories, and I have all these accurate accounts I can give. But they lived at the same time. So what that means is that mm. these memories are coming from a supernatural source because the person couldn't possibly have been reincarnated. And so he admitted, you know, a lot of these evidences, you know, it, it's indistinguishable. The hypothesis of reincarnation from demon possession is indistinguishable. So I didn't know oh. that when I was researching this at the New Age. I, I didn't even know this now. I thought that reincarnation you just kind of shattered my reality. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, he, he did say for some of the stronger cases, he, he did vouch for reincarnation for some of the stronger cases, but we have like Hebrews 9.27, for example, it's been appointed unto each man to live once. And after that comes the judgment. I actually just wrote a so paper YOLO for is seminary. True. What's that? YOLO is true. You only live once. Right. <laughs> I actually have a paper I wrote for seminary recently just on, you know, um, how one book in the Bible called Hebrews presents like four or five different angles for being against reincarnation. They're all like knockdown arguments. Oh, wow. Um, so it, it does not reconcile with the Bible at all. And, um, you know, the evidence needs to be understood in light of a, well, what's the authority you're using by which to assess the evidence, human reason. Mm. Is, is, is there, is, so there is no scientific conclusion that proves reincarnation. No, but there is evidence that needs to be explained. Okay. Now, whether or not it's actually explained by reincarnation or by some other supernatural mechanism, okay. I'm fine with saying there, there's, there's, there's enough evidence here that suggests something's going on. Hmm. Now, what, what's going on needs to then be addressed according to the best explanation we have available according to, I would say, you know, it needs to be assessed in light of the highest and best authority. So if Jesus comes on the scene and is controlling the forces of nature, predicts his own death and resurrection, casts out devils, proves he has authority over the powers of darkness, was known as a miracle worker and an exorcist, and very clearly teaches we have one life and after that comes the judgment, he gives a parable where it says that once you die, you can never come back. Very, very mm. clearly. The person's in hell, he's like, that's it. It's oh, a parable of that's the a terrifying man notion, and the poor man. actually. And I can understand why people yeah. reject that. Even me, I'm like, oh, really? But I thought I could have next life maybe to do something else or, you know. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's. I think that's why people like believing in reincarnation because it kind of lets them off the hook morally and gives them a sense of, oh, if I mess up here, I don't have anything to do about it. I don't have to be accountable for it. And Jesus is like, you know, well, yeah, you're going to have to be. But the good news is I was accountable on your behalf as your substitute on the cross. So come to me, and you don't have to worry about anything. You can just have fellowship with God and spend eternity in his presence. But the point in, all, in saying all this is that, like, my standard is the word of God and the person of Jesus. And I, that, that's my vantage point. So I'm looking down at everything from the vantage point of Jesus, who we claim to be. He proved it in history. There's substantial evidence that he did, in fact, rise from the dead. Mm. And his spirit lives in me and bears witness to me that scripture is divinely inspired. And, you know, I, knowing Jesus, knowing God, that's my standard as well. The word of God, the content of scripture, that's going to be the standard by which I'm looking down at the evidence we have. And everyone has their own authority and standard. I, I like to ask the question, according to what standard? Mm. That's, that's wrong. You know, that shouldn't have happened in the Old Testament. Or Jesus would never say that. He should, mm. That's wrong. Well, it's wrong according to what standard? What's the standard of authority you're ultimately appealing to? Human reason, moral impulses, human experience, all these things are fallible. Yeah. You know, does there exist an objective standard that we can grab onto? Definitely. And I would say that that's the God. And it's, but, it's, um, it's I forget what we were. Uh, I don't even know. I guess it doesn't matter at this point. <laughs> We've covered a lot, a lot of good stuff. But it's, it's, it is very heavy. Uh, the the concepts of Christianity because then if you accept Christianity then you're gonna have to accept evil you're gonna have to accept the devil right sin and these are all like heavy like oh man I don't, I don't even want to like 
look at that kind of stuff and it's it's heavy man it's really heavy and i yeah i i feel i feel for people who want to reject and i'm not even like i'm not here to evangelize i'm not exact i'm not a i wouldn't consider myself a christian i'm just really delving deep into this kind of stuff more from a uh, just using reason and logic and i think that uh, would you say that religion should or someone said that if it, some people think that religion and science contradict each other but if religion contradicts with science either you're either you have bad science or bad religion and i kind of like that that quote would you agree that christianity can be reconciled with science even if we don't understand or we don't have the advanced scientific tools to, un to unpack everything but do you think it can be reconciled with logic and reasoning for those scientists yeah I, I would i would say that it not only can be reconciled with science um it gives us a better foundation for doing logic and science what just sorry just to cut, oh, sorry just to cut you off just want to say one thing for the audience which is really blew my mind uh catholicism actually brought scientific knowledge to the whole world so just chew on that for a moment they made it open for the whole much, world I've, I've heard that said i haven't done too much research into the the foundation of christianity as like the motivation for scientific inquiry but i would say this i would say you know apart from the existence well first of all in order to do science or to think rationally, mm -hmm. you have to start with the premise that there exists a set of conceptual, eternally existing, unchanging laws of logic. Where are those rooted in, ontologically speaking? What's their anchor point in reality? Where did they come from? How do we, so you have to presuppose this immaterial conceptual realm in order to even do logic or perform logic, rational thinking, and, and do science in the first place. Science presupposes logic. I would say on an atheistic worldview where there's nothing more than molecules in motion mm -hmm. and your thought process is just ultimately brain fizz, uh, how, how do we account for invisible laws of logic and the laws of inference and where, where did they come from? How do we know that they're eternal or sorry, not maybe eternal, but unchanging? How do we know that they're fixed? How do we know that they're true? How do we know that they're aimed at reality? How do we know that they're true? The only reason we can know that they're true or, or posture that they're true is by appealing to our own reasoning process. But then you're in a circular argument. How do you get outside of your reasoning process, outside of your laws of logic, to validate that the laws of logic are legitimate in the first place? Hmm. So you, you don't, you're, if, you, if you start with everything is just nature molecules in motion and all the laws of logic are just ultimately byproducts of molecular molecular synapses and stuff creating um you know thoughts and um you know neurochemical reactions in the brain and that's ultimately what's giving rise to the laws of logic well how do you legitimize those and prove that they're um viable and able to be applied to science in the first place or rational thought in the first place you're going to have to appeal to your brain. You're just you're in a circular argument now. You're going to have to use those same processes, those same laws of logic, to try to account for why the laws of logic are valid in the first place. Hmm. So you're starting with a circular argument. If you all you believe is nature that exists, how do you know the laws of logic are are viable and reliable and aimed at truth in the world? 
Right. What's actual well, substantial reality behind all this kind of stuff, which is hard right. to and see it, and smell and taste, you know? Right. But you're going to have to use your cognitive processes and the laws of logic in order to try to justify why the laws of logic are viable and mm. reliable in the first place, which means you have to presuppose what you're trying to prove, which means you're in a circular argument. Mm. Right. Okay. So I'm going to ask an atheist or a naturalist who believes that there is no transcendent mind okay. that acts as the, the paradigm of rationality and our minds were not created to obtain truth and we're not made in the image of God. We're just going to say we're just molecules in motion. We're relatively evolved primates to, you know, you know, some a spin-off of biological processes from lightning hitting a puddle of water and creating bacteria or something. And that's us. Okay. Now I'm going to ask them, okay, well, how do you, okay. The laws of logic you're using to try to think about Christianity and invalidate Christianity. How do you know those laws of logic are reliable how do you but in order to try and give an account for those logic logic that are implicit in your reasoning process which you're using to debunk theism you're going to have to use those same laws of logic mm. the law of non-contradiction for example the law of the excluded metal people and look up what the laws of logic are you're gonna have to use those to try to validate them in the first place and it, you're stuck in a circular system you're gonna if, if i ask how do you know that logic itself as ascertained by your mind, is unchanging, is reliable. You're going to have to use logic to give me your answer. So you can't justify the use of logic or the existence of logic in an atheistic worldview. You have to presuppose logic. So mm. your starting point is laws of logic. Where did they come from? I don't know. How, what are they anchored in in reality? I don't know. And, but any answer you try and give, you're going to have to presuppose them. So you're pre presupposing the validity of this conceptual realm of immaterial, unchanging, universal laws of logic that just we're going to presuppose are reliable, even though we're just brain fizz, hmm. even though we're just primates and we're molecules. We're going to presuppose these laws of reason and logic are reliable and apply that to why God doesn't exist. But unless you start with the presupposition that God exists— you can't justify any kind of anchor point in reality for the laws of logic being universal, unchanging, and eternal. Mm. I, we need a transcendent mind to anchor these things. Here's another, here's another thing. People want to say, oh, <clears throat> you know, atheists and naturalists, well, reason precludes Christianity. It precludes theism, right? Reason would never allow you to conclude that Christianity exists. Reason only allows you to conclude evolutionary naturalism exists. Mm. It only allows you to conclude atheism. I would say on your own worldview, this is a different argument, I would say on your own worldview, the human brain evolved for the purpose of propagation of genetic material. Mm. It evolved for the purpose of survival, for evolutionary fitness. That's how and why your brain evolved. It was never evolved to obtain metaphysical truth. Everything you do, everything we're wired for, was meant to increase our ability to have an edge over the competition mm -hmm. so that we can reproduce and pass our genetic code onto the next generation and make sure that you know we're competing for survival. 
-hmm. And everything that we develop along the way in our system of evolution um, from various species, the way the brain developed and evolved was meant to increase our fitness and our chances of survival. So on evolution, on atheism, and on naturalism, our brain was never designed to obtain truth. Never designed to obtain truth. It was only designed to increase our chances of survival. So now we're going to take a brain that only evolved for the purpose of evolutionary fitness and not truth, certainly not metaphysical truth, mm. and we're going to use that, those same cognitive faculties, and we're going to say, with these cognitive faculties, I'm going to say God certainly does not exist or, or most likely does not exist. My question would be, if those very cognitive faculties that you're using evolved not for the purpose of truth, but for the purpose of survival, how do you know they're reliable in the first place? How do you know they're reliable? They're not reliable. Your brain did not evolve for the purpose of truth, but merely mm -hmm. for fitness. So how do you know that the belief that you have, that you're concluding with right now, about atheism, maybe atheism, the, way, the reason you're believing in it is because um, the, the cognitive processes that you've developed to increase your chance of survival, our species' chance of survival, is causing you to believe in atheism for the purpose of survival. The point is, is that if atheism is true, let's hypothetically assume atheism is true for the sake of this argument. It's not. But if it was true, we would never be justified in believing in it in the first place because our cognitive processes are unreliable if, in fact, atheism is true. Right. So the very line of reasoning we're using and the very faculties we're using to conclude atheism um, were not evolved for the purpose of truth, and therefore belief in atheism is unwarranted. It's unjustified. It can't be rationally held. Right? This is called Alvin Plantinga's um, evolutionary argument against naturalism. So basically, we haven't even gone into the evidence of God yet. All we've looked at is how do you account for the laws of logic mm. that you're saying Christianity and theism fails to apply to their rational method? How do you account for those? You account for universal, unchanging, eternal laws of logic in a purely naturalistic universe that you're presupposing mm. when you're arguing against Christianity. And any answer you give, you're going to be presupposing these laws of logic again. So how do you account for that vicious circle? And how do you account for that in your mm. worldview? And how can you really say that what you're thinking about God, the conclusions you're coming to about God, that your brain is actually fit and reliable to think about those things in the first place if your brain evolved as an instrument of fitness and not truth? Mm. Right? But we haven't even considered the evidence for God. We could then consider all the evidences for the existence of God and yeah. for Christianity. Such uh, and as we, the can, we can go into that in another video. And of course, people watching this, feel free to throw in your you know your concerns or you want to, or your rebuttal or whatever maybe we can right. go through them next time um but I, d I don't think you're going to have atheists or many atheists on this channel i think just by the fact that having a psychedelic experience kind of proves that there's something outside of just sure. your, your your brain you know uh but right. just before we end this i would love to know how ca ca what can you have an empirical empirical evidence of encountering christ and can anyone do this even if you haven't, if you have no idea about the Bible. Yeah, I would say that um, Jesus tells us, "Whoever seeks will find; mm -hmm. whoever knocks, the door will be opened unto him." And he says, "I will by no means turn away those who come to me." Mm. And his call 
to everyone, every man is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you, my teaching upon you, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. Hmm. Um, so the Bible says, if you seek God with all your heart, sincerely, you will find him. And Jesus tells us, if you seek me sincerely, you'll find me. And so I would encourage people to seek Jesus, to pray, to ask God for revelation. Um, Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Mm. Right? Jesus says, no one can come unto, my, come unto me unless it is granted of him by my Father. What does Jesus say here? Jesus is saying it, needs, it, need, it takes revelation from God himself. Right? Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? Sorry, who do, who do others say that I am? Well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah. Well, who do you say that I am, Peter? You're, you're the son of the Most High. Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Mm. So God promises us to reveal his Son to us directly. And how, do, how, does, how does that happen? How, how, do we, how do we position ourselves for that? We humble ourselves before God. We seek God in spirit and in truth, humble, uh, an attitude of contrition. We ask God for revelation. Pray, talk to God. If, if you're real, if, you, if Christianity is true, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, I want to know. Please give me revelation. Please give me understanding. I want to know you. But most importantly, the Bible says that God used to allow ignorance for a season, but now he's calling all men everywhere to repent. Mm. So people should not be after a mystical experience, like a, a life-transforming experience like Paul the Apostle had, for example. God's asking us, he's commanding us to repent and believe, right? And maybe developing that relationship with God will take time, mm. and we start to grow in knowledge and grow in wisdom and grow in revelation, which we do. And obviously, if we're praying, we're fasting, we're reading the Word, mm. we're worshiping the Lord, we're going to be built up in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies of Christ and brings us to knowledge of Christ. So it might take time to cultivate intimacy with the Lord, but the starting point is, come unto me, all who seek will find. And what's he asking us to do? He's asking us to turn from our sin to Jesus, to the cross, and put our faith in him for salvation. Salvation from what? From the penalty of sin. Mm. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree, it says. The record of offenses that stood against us was nailed to the cross and done away with, with its legal demands. So Christ is our substitute. God imputed our sin to Jesus, judged Jesus in our place, and he's commanding us and asking us, you know, hey, I've taken care of everything for you. I've made provision for human sin. I love you. I want relationship with you. I've put all my chips in to be with you, you know, receive my forgiveness. Mm. Turn and receive my forgiveness, right? It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Turn and receive. Turn and receive. And, um, you know, come drink freely from the rivers of life. You know, it's all available in my son. So people should not be looking for some kind of like mystical transcendent experience of Christ or the Christ, right? Mm. I encourage people, get alone with God, pray to God, Ask God to reveal Jesus to you. Read through the New Testament prayerfully. I would, I would specifically say the Gospel of John. If you're devouring the Gospel of John, see what Jesus has to say about himself. Mm. And, and, hey, Jesus, if this is you, I want to know you. And posture yourself in that meekness, that humbleness, that contrition, and 
obviously, um, the end game is, is salvation, to know him as our personal Lord and Savior through repentance and faith. Mm. And he's made this available to everyone. He's not holding anything back. You know, in one sense, we could say the ball's in our, our court. Mm. He promises us eternal life, eternity in the presence of God, wells of living water, communion and fellowship with God. And it's a free gift of salvation out of his love for you. His desire to be in personal relationship with you, that's what motivated him. Because of the great love with which he loved you, grace, forgiveness, everything's taken care of. And we can come to him and receive. There you go, folks. <laughs> there you go. So, so fasting, prayer, reading scripture. Is, is reading scripture even a prerequisite? Could you come to these moments without even reading the Bible at all? That's a good question. Just people, through, people like, do affirmations come... or whatever? No, not through affirmations. Jesus does sometimes, though, um, intervene in people's dreams and visions in different parts of the world where they don't have access to Scripture. Oh, really? Um, and that, this happens yeah, a lot, like, right? Like, not just not yeah, just New oh, Age yeah. people gone having a coming to Jesus moment, but a lot of people from Islam or no. all all across the world from all Especially... different races, religions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in Islam, where you'll get executed if you leave your faith. <laughs> And That's where, if, you know, you're not allowed to read the Bible. Yeah, and you're not allowed to read the Bible. Um, and That's insane, so, man. I wow, sorry. This is, like, crazy right. to me that you can get capital punishment for, like, believing something else. Because I know in Christianity, if you leave, I mean, yeah, of course, your family might be upset, but you're not going to get killed for it. Your family doesn't have a right to kill you. Your family has a right to kill you if you depart from Islam, according to the Quran. According to the Quran, yeah. And I asked, I asked a Muslim that. I was like, I was like, I asked a Muslim that last year, and I was like, "Is it not true that the Quran teaches that if you depart from the faith tomorrow, like your brother and your father have a right to kill you the next day?" And she's like, "Yeah, does he?" And I was like, "Well, how is that? How is that a loving God?" Wow. I was like, "Does not God have to be the greatest conceivable being in order to truly be God?" That's scary, man. And there's no love there. But I would say, so there's, the, there's two questions here. Okay. There's two questions. It's the first question is, how do we enter the fold? Mm -hmm. How do we come into fellowship and communion with God? And the answer for that first question is repentance and faith. Turn from your sin to Christ. Put your faith in Christ for your salvation. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Acts 16:31. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? Romans 10, 9, I believe, whoever confesses with his mouth Jesus is Lord, believes in his heart God raised him from the dead, will be saved. So repentance and faith is how we become saved and mm. enter into relation, covenant relationship with God. Now, how do we cultivate intimacy and relationship with God after we're saved? That's when worship, scripture, fasting, prayer. Now, we should be doing that during our time seeking God too, worship, prayer, fasting, and uh, scripture. Right. But in order to be saved, want to be saved today, turn from your sin to Christ today. And then it's a matter of, okay, now that, I'm, now that I've repented and turned, I want to get in the Word and find out what this God has to say about himself, mm. about me, about what he's done, about what he will do. And I want to pray and deny myself and deny my flesh so I can get closer and closer to him. And you're you're now in a spiritual relationship with God for the first time. And it's crazy. And it amazes me all the time. It's like, mm -hmm. God, I don't deserve this access to you.
but you've made it available to me in Christ. So I thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin that I could have an open heaven over my head. And, you know, he loves us all the same. There's nobody who's unnoticed by him or a second-class citizen to him. You know, we're all worth the same at the foot of the cross. He died for every one of our sins and would have done it for just you. He loves us all the same. Just asking, turn and believe. Turn and believe. I've made provision for sin. Yeah, you've messed up. I've made provision. Come come today and be forgiven and come know God today. Right. And that's why we have free will. We can choose not to. And, so, you know, I've heard, choose, absolutely. I, I heard a comment say, like, uh, how insecure does God have to be for you, for you to worship him? But it's like, and someone, an uh, uh, interesting response was like, he, he doesn't need your worship. You need, he, you need to worship him. It's for your own sake. You know, you can choose not to, which I, I found interesting. Yeah. And can you actually dif- differentiate well, like, the uh, difference between affirmation and prayer? Uh, if you want to finish your thought, you're about to say something. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll answer that question. So a prayer <clears throat> would be <clears throat> a vertical connection is made between you and God a vertical conversation with a person hmm. and you're talking to a person as person means talking to a person. human well jesus is we would say truly god truly man so hmm. jesus he there is three divine persons one being one god but this one god is tripersonal has existed uh, the holy trinity um yep has hmm. existed from eternity past and the second person of the trinity came on took on flesh the name, the name that was given to the incarnate second person by an angel in Luke chapter 1 was Jesus. And Jesus had a truly human nature, but was truly God at the same time, where it says the fullness of deity dwelt in him. And so Jesus was God in the flesh. Mm. And so he is, in one sense, like the Bible says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He's still embodied. When he rose from the dead bodily, he ascended into heaven bodily. He's seated at the right hand of the Father bodily. He's coming back to the earth soon bodily. He's still in the body, so he's still a man. But he's a man who's also truly God by nature, and that's what differentiates him from everyone else. We're not, right? Put fear in them, O Lord, but the nations know they are but men. You know, the Egyptians are man and not God. Mm. Their horses are flesh and not spirits. We're not God, but when we talk about talking to a person, I'm talking to either Jesus or I'm talking to the Father in the name and in the authority of Jesus. And the Bible says, like, to give thanksgiving. Okay. Um, that's one thing we do in prayer. We thank God. We thank Jesus to confess our sins. Mm-hmm. We apologize for our sins. We come before him. Uh, thanksgiving, to thank him for what he's done, what he will do. Thank him for things we haven't even received yet. You know, mm-hmm. thank him for breakthrough that we haven't received yet. Um, and then worship. And adoration, where we're just praising him and, and talking to him on the basis of his attributes, his holiness, his love. Um, maybe we're singing songs in our heart or with mouth, mouth to him, right? It's mm. an act of worship. So what we're also doing playing, with prayer playing music is a, is is a sign of worship. Because as a musician, I like to yeah, absolutely. That's if it, cool. <laughs> if, if it's done unto the Lord, awesome. Yeah, if it's done unto the Lord and for the Lord. Um, David was a worship a worshiper back mm. in the Old Testament. And um, worship goes a long way with God. God loves worship. And um, yeah, so prayer is supplication, communion with a person. Okay. Affirmations, affirmations are a self-contained, you know, there's no connection or supplication happening with a, a divine person. Affirmations are you just saying things in your mind to try to shift the external world through some kind of 
invisible mechanism. Maybe it's the law of attraction or whatever. Okay. But affirmations would be, at most, affirmations would be self-edifying, okay. even if they're biblical. So, for example, I will, I, I'll still do some self-affirmations as Christian. Like, I, as a Christian, I'll say things like, you know, God will never leave me or forsake me. You mm-hmm. know, if God can be, if God is for me, who can be against me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, God says that, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, declare and affirm that all things are going to work together for my good in the end. Mm. Um, so I'll affirm myself, not of things that haven't happened yet, but affirm myself of the promises of God as revealed in scripture. But pre- that wouldn't be prayer, right? So we, I think we should be doing you know, affirming ourselves and the promises of God. I think that's part of biblical meditation, but prayer, yeah. bro, getting all, getting along with God, stop having communion with a person, talking to Jesus, talking to the father and, um, mm. you know, coming with that heart of confession, that heart of surrender and repentance, um, Thanksgiving, you know, worship, um, confession. And yeah, it goes a long way with God. And that's really how you cultivate, cultivate a relationship. But, once again, how do we get how do we get into relationship with God? Repentance and faith, right? Mm. Um, let's receive the atonement, so that our sins no longer separate us from a holy God. All our judgments were in Christ. Let's turn to Christ, believe on Him, and we have. And all this to say, we have really good reason to believe on Him. That's really what we covered in this. Is this can be grounded in history? It can be grounded in evidence. Yeah. And I'm it's happy, like hear. you said before. Yeah. Because I have a very yeah. scientific mind, ultra, ultra skeptical. So I need some sort of grounded information, not just from people's word. And of course, you can also, apparently, you can have a direct experience with this kind of stuff. So you can have a direct experience and you have your, your reason, which is pretty cool. I haven't had the direct experience. You know, I'm trying to, to commune because I want to experience it myself. And, you know, I've had very, very, very profound psychedelic trips so it would be interesting comparing like a a a substance induced mystical state versus let's say having a moment with christ you know i'm very intrigued like i'm very curious to see what would that be like so yeah yeah and i think you know a lot of people don't read the bible even i you know i was crapping on the bible my whole life and i'm like hang on a sec i've never read the bible all all the things that i was crapping on the bible for were like based on atheists ignorant assumptions and not all atheists are ignorant i'm just talking about the actual the the low tier ones who have terrible arguments which i used to think were good arguments but they're really terrible arguments. and we can go through all this because man we're just scratching the surface and i could talk for hours on this kind of stuff you know and i'm in the middle of uh actually no i'm more than halfway through the old testament so i haven't even gotten to the new testament yet so i'm excited yeah, yeah man, I'm, I'm excited for you, too, and I like seeing what God is yeah. you know, doing in your heart and stirring in your heart for Christ. And, yeah, I would, I would hope people watching would feel, like, encouraged and intrigued and, you know, inspired to take Christ seriously. And, again, what does Jesus say about himself? Get alone with God. Jesus, if this is you, mm-hmm. I, I want to know. I want to know who you are. I wanna, I'm going to read your words, see what you say about yourself, reveal yourself to me, Jesus. And, and you know, trust in him from the heart. Trust in him from the heart. Turn from your sin to Christ. I trust in you, Jesus. Believe you died and rose from my sin. Um, forgive me. Make me a new creature in Christ. You know, wash me of my sin. And, um, yeah, God wants God wants uh, everyone to come and know him. And there's forgiveness for everyone, love for everyone. And, yeah, it's available in Christ. So Awesome, man. Thanks, brother. I really— Christ. Re- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Christ. 
Christ and Christ alone. Let me just put that okay. period at the end of the sentence there. And like, I said, <laughs> like, like I said, guys, if you want to, if you have any rebuttals, give us what you got. I'm sure you'd be more than happy to answer anything and not avoid certain things. Like, oh, I don't want to address that. I don't think so. Anyway, I hope not. <laughs> you want to? No, be... no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I actually have an. I have a website. I have a website called uh, reasonsforjesus.com where I have over 300 published articles on there mm -hmm. dealing with a lot of these questions of how do we know scripture is reliable and what yeah, about yeah. this what about that what about yeah you, so you, I, I like how you tackle you know, from both the the logical reasonable side of your brain and actual and you can have a direct experience with this stuff just most people don't try you know so yeah well god god's redeemed our whole being in christ right he wants like he's a spiritual being we're made for a spiritual relationship we crave a spiritual understanding of the world mm -hmm. and you know that's all made available to us in, in the person of jesus we can have that right that uh um left brain kind of logic yeah. rootedness in rationality and evidence and we can have the the right brain which is satisfied by sweet communion and fellowship like acts three times of refreshment come from the presence of the lord you know god's made himself available to us personally and we can have a dual warrant for our faith. We have Whoa. the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and we can have so evidence and reason. Because I just interviewed someone who's like a, I would consider him an expert on Carl Jung and, and apparently they had scientific studies proving that the left brain isn't, a, isn't aware of the right brain, but the right brain is aware of the left brain, which is something very interesting. The, the, the right brain has a much more total, uh, uh, a total perception of reality, whereas the right brain is very just very linear. I just found that mind-blowing. The left brain is not aware of the right brain, and the right brain is very aware of the left brain. There's scientific studies. This That's is like fact now. You have to obviously very research. Cool. I don't. I don't. I can't just pull out a uh, an article out of my ass. But do your research. Huh. I, I just found that absolutely mind-blowing. That says a lot. Interesting. Yeah. It does, and there's some people too who, you know. People will ask, like, imagine, I don't know, like a your, your 70 year old Christian grandmother who just, you know, swears by the Lord and loves the Lord and, you know, is prayerful and just always encouraging you and others in the things of God. It's like, what if you ask her, why do you believe what you believe? She might not have a kind of like an evidential answer like the ones we've talked about today, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but she has something else. She, she would say, like, I, I know that I know that I know that I know. <laughs> and and I, I don't want to undermine that because if God's powerful enough to create a universe out of nothing, he's powerful enough to reveal himself to us personally. Mm. And I don't want to take away the significance and the seriousness of um, God's revelation of Christ to us through the agency of Holy Spirit upon repentance and faith in Christ. Mm. And... Uh, you know, we can have two anchor points for the Christian worldview. And yeah, I mean, like you said, if people, I mean, I would ha happily have a discussion with Leo or by someone else in that community or, if they ever wanted anyone? to have a dialogue. Well, email me, yeah. comment below. I would love that. I would love to actually, uh, I'd like to interview people from all different worldviews instead of, because I've been guilty of just kind of sticking in my, or, or only interviewing people already sort of in my circle. I think it's good to expand, you know, you don't want to be, you know, the influencer, but most influencers aren't influencers. They're just preaching what a whole group of people already believe instead of actually challenging ideas, you know. And that's kind of the approach that I've tried to take. But yeah, I think it'll be very, very interesting. So anyone who's keen to have a, have a I don't even like the word debate. I just, 
a conversation. Let's have a, a reasonable conversation. A, fr a, fr a friendly discussion, a friendly conversation. Exactly. It's about, man, I'd love to talk to Leo about this stuff. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. I guess the proof is in the pudding. If they're up for the challenge, they're up for it. <laughs> if they're not, well, I think that speaks for itself. So. <laughs> Well, well, I don't have any, I don't have anything to I don't have anything to hide from like I would like to know what the topic is so of course, I can of course, put a little yeah. more time preparing but like like Christians don't have anything to to hide from because I think the evidence speaks for itself and it stands on its own merits mm. and you know, the, God has left us a, a strong enough evidence of Himself in human history and in nature mm -hmm. such that I mean I I think it's very self evident. And reasonable to believe that that Christianity is true. I would say it's compelling, and it's even it's warranted on the basis of the evidence. I don't have anything to hide from, so mm. I, I, yeah. have a, I have a lot to learn. So I can't say I can't speak from authority. I need a, I, I've learned from not just speaking about something just because I'm I'm new newly into it. You know, I got to wait a, quite a while and wait for my the just to process it all. You know, that's wisdom. Yeah, and you like have that. to wait. You got to wait for. You gotta be prepared for bias, like true, like ignorant bias, where you gotta the way I even approach it is like I go to everything just just prepare to be wrong on this. You know what I mean? Like a mm -hmm. truly skeptical mind. So we'll see how this goes. I'm I'm just warming up to it. Uh actually I've been studying this stuff for years and just now this is the first public podcast that I'm really talking about Christianity. So it just goes to show it's been three years that I've been like Maybe the last couple months, like actually reading the Bible and stuff, but the last three years, like listening, just people like Jordan Peterson or all these different groups, like yourself. He's a, or... he's a fellow. He's a fellow Canadian. I like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's awesome. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of people just kind of just speak about things that they don't really know, or they're just kind of newly getting into because they need to upload five videos a week or whatever it is, you know. So I think we need to not just think but like really feel these things out and also it should reconcile with not just logic and reason but faith and direct experience and how does that actually tie into the rest of the world you know it should all tie in together that's right. what, that's that's what truth is right it should be a consistent yeah, a con constant thing across yeah. all planes no matter what angle you look at it i mean it, the truth might look different but substantially it should be the same thing that's how that's what i believe anyway and the approach that yeah, I'm taking. I believe it. It should be. You should have your your worldview should be able to explain and account for all of our human experience. Every all data point needs to be able to be explained. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe maybe not all validated, yeah. but at least all explained. Exactly. And I, I think that the Christian worldview um, offers very sufficient, compelling answers to why is the world as evil as it is. Mm. Um, you know, what hope do we have beyond okay. the grave? You know, what is the meaning of life? You know, why do I have this longing that there's something more? Like, I could just go to verse after verse after verse after verse, and it, it, it just makes sense. It makes sense of everything we experience, all the data points of our human experience, um, the biblical world you can account for. And, you know, most importantly, the biblical world you itself, it's not just that it's pragmatic and it's useful and it can account for everything, it's that it's well-evidenced. Mm. It's evidenced in history and in the arguments of natural theology, which we didn't really get into. But, you know, there's good evidence to, to believe in the Christian faith. And Jesus can be known and personally experienced. God can be known and experienced and turn to Christ and he'll change your life, you know.
and you know there's a lot to get into you know like the the nature of evil uh proofs of evidence of god's existence thomas aquinas he had if, you, if anyone's interested you can look at thomas aquinas he has five proofs for god's existence which is pretty mind-blowing uh but yeah man that's it man we've gone, gone for two and a half hours man and again we've just scratched the surface so I really appreciate you coming on, brother. Uh, you've shared a lot of wisdom and you've definitely blown my mind in a lot of things that I, I didn't know, you know. Very cool. Well, yeah, thanks so, for having me and, you know, we'll be in touch, bro. Maybe we can do this again. Yeah. Um, I want to. I want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, so. definitely. Man. Me too, man. So do you have any uh, anything you want to plug? Like, where can people reach you? You have your website, reasonswithjesus.com. Did you want to link it? Yeah, I have a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my YouTube channel. So I have videos... Most of them have to do with the New Age, um, contrasting these things with the biblical worldview. I also have a, a book called The Second Coming of the New Age, mm-hmm. which if you're in North America, you can find on Amazon. And that would be, aside from the mountain of spelling mistakes, please just have mercy on me if any of you check it out. Aside from that, it's a very useful resource, especially for people who are just getting used to thinking through these things mm-hmm. and want good, solid answers to their legitimate questions about new age spirituality and christianity um i actually am going to ship uh, yours has been shipped out today oh, to australia i was just talking to i'm excited yeah. yeah so it's cool yeah man um and yeah i'm on instagram too um i actually love instagram i think it's a really cool platform um yeah, i agree if people just like wear more clothes and stop twerking and stuff <laughs> but other than that it, it, it promotes that culture it's just so bad but other than that it's a cool platform so i'm on instagram um and yeah that's it cool man i'll link it up thanks again for coming on and yeah cheers guys catch you later